Hey there, podcast listener, and welcome to a new episode of Pick 6 Movies. Mind if I call you PL for short? Nice to see you again, PL, and you are in for a treat. It is a special day when we can welcome back to the show one of our favorite recurring actors and bad impressions, Sean Connery. And when you add to that a return of Wesley Snipes, you have yourself a slam-bang action thriller that is neither slam-bang nor all that thrilling. If you're one of those PLs who is new to the show this time around, have no fear. I'll lay it all out for you in easy-to-understand terms. This is a podcast called Pick 6 Movies. We call it that because every season we pick six movies, all built around some cockamamie theme, and we go through them thoroughly to squeeze as much nonsense out of them as we can. But before we kill a few brain cells with our tomfoolery, we try to whip a little knowledge on you about the movie or the creators or something related to the production. And this is season 21, a season we call Cright in the Middle with You, all about movies written, directed, or based on the work of Michael Crichton. This is episode four, a movie about murder inside a Japanese corporation, something with defense contracts and lots of magic computers and corporate espionage. Sound interesting? Well, you be the judge as we dive into Rising Sun. First up, Chad is here with some information on the journey of Michael Crichton's book to the screen. So settle in, PL, grab some sake, and get ready. It's time for Pick 6 Movies. Take it away, Chad. There is a house in New Orleans. Hey, it's Bertram, back in the booth. Interning his heart out. How enjoying the internship on this season based on Michael Crichton's writing there, Bertram? Did you read any of the Michael Crichton novels in preparation for this season? Yeah, well, we're not doing Jurassic Park, Bertram. Because it's arguably a good movie. Did you read the book Rising Sun in preparation for this week's episode? Fantastic, Bertram. I knew there was a reason that I said that I liked you. What'd you think about the adaptation of this movie from the printed page to the silver screen? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, the casting is interesting and a little bit contentious. Mm -hmm. Again, you are correct. They did change the ending and the names of some characters and a few key plot points from the book. <laughs> Rising Sun wasn't the first movie to get a bunch of backlash when it came to adapting the novel into a feature film. <laughs> Bertram, give me some music that's suitable for discussing why some films get it so wrong when it comes to turning a book into a movie. Have you ever read a really good novel and then you heard, hey, they're making a movie of this book and you get super excited to see the real life version of the characters brought to life on the silver screen only to be disappointed by a product that looks nothing like what you imagined. Well, almost anybody who reads novels has experienced this a time or two. These less than stellar book to movie adaptations may be due to multiple reasons including budget restrictions, speed to market to capitalize on the popularity of the book, poor casting choices, bad screenplay writing, accuracy of the character portrayals, plot structure, poor direction, or just overall crummy production value. And there is a long list of movies that took liberties with adapting a novel for the silver screen. Stephen King's The Shining, as adapted and directed by Stanley Kubrick, is much more ambiguous as to what's going on in the Overlook Hotel when compared to the source material. 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit was based on the Gary Wolf book Who Censored Roger Rabbit, where the tunes in that book were all comic strip characters, and it was set in the 1980s, and it was in a universe where people and cartoon characters coexisted, which meant that characters like Dick Tracy and Beetle Bailey and Snoopy and Andy Cap, you know, that lovable wife-beating drunk, you don't know who those people are, you can go ask your great-grandparents. And in this book, comic strips were actually created by photographing the Toon characters. And actually, when they talked, word balloons appeared up over their heads. That's weird, right? <laughs> you didn't see that in the movie. In 2007, Will Smith starred in an adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, which swapped out the vampires for zombies, because I guess zombies were more popular at the time. Mm -hmm. They also changed out the ending of the plot, ignoring the fact that the hero of the story is, in fact, kind of a bad guy. Winston Groom's novel Forrest Gump features Forrest cursing. He becomes an astronaut. He plays chess. He's a stuntman for a time. Forrest doesn't marry Jenny. She marries somebody else instead of dying from AIDS. They made some bold choices around that novel's cinematic envisioning. The film adaptation of the graphic novel Watchmen does not include a giant squid in the finale. The film adaptation of Nathaniel Hawthorne's literary classic, The Scarlet Letter, ends with Native Americans attacking the Puritans and allowing Hester to escape with her true love, Dimsdale. In the book, Dimsdale drops dead after admitting he's the baby daddy to Hester's kid. Now that ending may be good for an episode of The Maury Povich Show, but not so much when it comes to a star-studded big action blockbuster like The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> And speaking of blockbusters, in a season that's all about Michael Crichton, Jurassic Park is kind of the daddy of all Michael Crichton movie adaptations. And it did not escape a similar fate, having the movie's ending completely changed from the source material. In that book, the island is bombed to bejesus and all the dinosaurs die. <laughs> Unlike the ending of the movie, which left the door open for sequels and video games and theme park rides and pajamas and bed sheets and toys and animated series and Jurassic World and, and Camp Jurassic and on and on and on. Jurassic Park wasn't the only Michael Crichton that had some key plot points twisted around regarding the movie's adaptation. Barry Levinson, who directed Diner and The Natural and Rain Man, well, he came in and sat in the director's chair for the film adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel, Disclosure. Now, Disclosure is about sexual harassment. But there's a twist. In this book, it's a white man being harassed by a predatory woman in a position of power. Finally, someone had the courage to tell this story. In the film adaptation, Michael Douglas plays this everyman who ends up getting an unwanted blowjob from Demi Moore. <laughs> oh Michael Douglas made a lot of movies in the 80s and 90s where he had problematic sex with people like Fatal Attraction and War of the Roses, Basic Instinct, Disclosure. Just unlucky in love, Mr. Douglas. The novel, Disclosure, was described by critics as sanctimonious and unrelentingly sleazy, self-righteous, smutty, and anti-feminist. Now, the movie shifted slightly away from all of the themes of sexual harassment, and it focused on a bigger whodunit that the team at Mystery Incorporated would have solved in about two minutes. Barry Levinson returned 
for another adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel with Sphere, which also had a few notable differences compared to the novel. At the end of this book, all of the three main characters just agree to give up their newly acquired alien powers. Oh, you didn't see it? Sorry, you were never going to watch it anyway. In contrast, the book tosses in a twist that implies that one of our three main characters is a holdout and unknowingly tricked the other two individuals in this decision. Hmm, <laughs> intrigued. And then there's Rising Sun, the focus of this episode of Pick 6 Movies, the best-selling murder mystery novel, where the movie decided to change the who in the whodunit for this big screen adaptation. To understand why screenwriters changed out who the killer was in Rising Sun, we have to go back and understand when this novel came out and take a look at the controversy surrounding the book and the film's adaptation. Rising Sun was published in 1992, and it's this detective murder mystery that deals with the business relationships between the Japanese and Americans. And it's important to set the table when it comes to the cultural landscape of the early 1990s. Now keep in mind, the novel Jurassic Park came out two years earlier in 1990, and its film adaptation hit theaters on June 11, 1993. The film adaptation of Rising Sun landed in theaters on July 30th of that same year, just eight weeks after Jurassic Park took over Cineplex. When Rising Sun landed in theaters, it was actually the number one movie in the United States and Jurassic Park was in the number four spot. Michael Crichton's popularity as a writer and influential movie maker was skyrocketing. When Rising Sun, the novel came out, it was criticized as exploitative of the business relationships between the US and Japan presenting a somewhat unflattering portrayal of Japanese business practices, framing the Japanese as a threat to American interests that were borderline racist when it came to the Japanese. Even before the book was available to the public, there was much posturing when it came to which company would pay for the rights to make this movie. Columbia Pictures was owned by the Japanese, so they were a hard no. Other film studios considered picking it up, including Universal and TriStar. But when it came to paying for the rights to a potentially insensitive, racially themed novel and making it into a movie, it was Rupert Murdoch's 20th Century Fox that snagged the rights to Rising Sun, where Crichton was paid a cool $1 million. Crichton was originally brought in to pen the screenplay, which he did, and Crichton's screenplay was reportedly an accurate adaptation of his own novel. The movie's director, Philip Kaufman, disagreed and asked for five additional rewrites of the first 40 pages. Who would have the audacity to request so many rewrites of a screenplay written by Michael Crichton based on a novel by Michael Crichton? Well, the aforementioned Philip Kaufman, that's who. Kaufman was the director of the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. He also directed The Right Stuff a film about the test pilots that became America's first astronauts. And he directed Henry in June, the film that was the first movie to get an NC-17 rating. And Kaufman got a story credit on Raiders of the Lost Ark, reportedly being the guy who came up with the Ark of the Covenant as that film's centerpiece. Kaufman reportedly brought in David Mamet to punch up the script for Rising Sun, and they trimmed a lot of the more notable anti-Japanese content from the movie. Not only did Kaufman and Crichton butt heads on the writing of the screenplay, 
But Crichton took issue with the casting of Wesley Snipes as the lead detective from the LAPD Asian Crime Investigation Unit in the novel Central Murder Mystery. Why? Well, because Wesley Snipes is a very black man. At the time of filming, the LAPD Asian Crime Investigation Unit had no black officers. Crichton disagreed with the casting of Snipes in the role because Crichton felt that the movie's central theme was the tension between the United States and Japan, and casting a black man introduces another level of racial tension due to existing racial relationships between black people and Japanese people in the United States. Also, keep in mind this movie came out in 1993. One year earlier, the LA riots took place from April to May of 1992. John Singleton's Boys in the Hood had hit theaters two years prior. Spike Lee's biographical film on the life of Malcolm X, well, it also came out in 1992. Menace to Society was released in May of 93. And although we were still a year away from O.J. Simpson leading the LAPD on an afternoon slow-speed car chase through Los Angeles and Orange County on TV, race relations in the United States were ever-present in the media. And Michael Crichton felt that casting Wesley Snipes in this role complicated his original focus on cultural differences between the East and the West. But Kaufman didn't care. Wesley Snipes was coming off success in Passenger 57 and White Men Can't Jump, Jungle Fever, New Jack City. Snipes was a rising star. And Kaufman said that Rising Sun needed energy. That urban sense <laughs> that a black actor could bring to it. And Kaufman thought Wesley Snipes was the best person for the role of Spider Webb Smith, a former basketball star from the inner city. Wait, what? Wasn't his name Peter Smith in the book? Why would they change his name from Peter to Webster? And he wasn't from the inner city, and I don't think he played basketball. Bertram, did the main character in Rising Sun, was he from the inner city and play basketball? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Look, if they were going to change any name of a character in the book for the movie, it should have been Sean Connery's character, John Connor. Yeah, I know, the only character that you can name from the Terminator series. And T2 was released just two years before Rising Sun hit theaters. Why is his name John Connor? Johnny Carson would have made more sense. Speaking of the character John Connor, no, not that one, Sean Connery was the actor that Michael Crichton had in mind when he wrote this character in the book Rising Sun. John Connor has unlimited knowledge of Japanese culture and serves as the cultural guide for the main detective trying to solve this murder mystery. Sean Connery came on board to play the part, as he was no stranger to movies, with racial insensitivity when it comes to the portrayal of Asian characters in film. See the James Bond classic, You Only and Twice for more on that topic? Connery didn't just agree to star in the movie, he was also a producer on the film. Keep in mind that Sean Connery was having a real renaissance in his career at this time, having taken home an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Brian De Palma's adaptation of The Untouchables, he played Indiana Jones's dad in the third installment of that franchise, The Hunt for Red October. He had a cameo in Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Sean Connery appearing in Rising Sun in a part that was written for him was yet another successful decision in his selection of roles that embraced his persona as an elder statesman of Hollywood. 
Despite the successful casting of Sean Connery to play a character based on Sean Connery, Michael Crichton washed his hands of the whole production and walked away with his big fat paycheck. Kaufman went on to make the movie adaptation he envisioned and said he wanted to make an old school murder mystery that was, quote, this fable, his adventure where the hero gets the call and along the way meets the wizard who guides him to the Dark Tower through the strange customs and unfamiliar, even hostile territory. End quote. <laughs> God, give me a break. Kaufman envisioned a movie that was reminiscent of Chinatown or the early mysteries of Humphrey Bogart. Kaufman had no desire to highlight all of the muckraking controversial details that critics barked about from Michael Crichton's original novel. Crichton took his lumps when it came to the criticism of his book, Rising Sun, a novel where one character described the Japanese as being the most racist people on planet Earth. <laughs> I don't think so. Have you been paying attention to American politics? <laughs> anyway, all of this happens amidst a plot that shows the United States in a serious state of decline with its citizens unwilling to adapt to the way that the Japanese people think and act and conduct business, which drove the filmmakers to actually change the killer. You know what? I don't want to give it away. Stick around to the end and we'll talk about that big twist. But it turns out it's an American and not a Japanese guy. Hey, did this novel serve as a warning of things to come here in the United States? Was it an indirect bashing of Japan at a time of strained relations with the United States? Or was it a direct bashing of the United States during a time of strained relations with Japan? Or is it just a murder mystery set against the economic background of the early 1990s. I, you know what? I don't understand these questions and I sure as heck don't have the answers, but you know what? I know who does have the answers and that's Mr. Bo Ransdell. Let's get Bo in here, discuss this movie from start to finish to see if it's any good. Ladies and gentlemen, co-highs and senpais, pick six movies, <laughs> proudly presents 1993's Rising Sun. Please don't play the sound of a gong here. I don't want to have to answer all of those emails. Thank you. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined, as always, by the very talented Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? Konnichiwa, Chad. <laughs> I am doing fantastic. We are talking about a movie that I have watched twice now. Yes. In very short order. Uh-huh. And I think I got a nosebleed the second time. Uh-oh. But... You know, what are you going to do, Chad? You got you to suffer for your art. Look, we got to deal with some HR stuff. For people listening to this podcast, we record the introductions sometimes weeks, if not months in advance of the uh, recording the actual episode. Mm -hmm. And I just listened to the final edit of the introduction for mm -hmm. Rising Sun. That's what we're talking about, right? That's right. Okay. I go in to talk to Teddy in the editing booth, and I said, what part of don't put a gong sound at the end, don't you understand? Yeah. You know what he says to me? What, what's he says? He says, sorry, I had a tuna sandwich for lunch. I don't know how any of that has to do with the other thing. He just puts his head down, and I don't know if for a fact, but I know that it's true. Teddy is high all the time. Sure. I mean, that's not the problem. <laughs> we hire some of the biggest weirdos. I don't even think he's on the payroll. I'm not sure I'm on the payroll. Hire in quotes. 
<laughs> do you have at least seven fingers to push buttons? Yes, I do. Come this way, sir. Do you need dubious college credit? <laughs> You know, I mean, we just have a bunch of, you know, interlopers washing up on these shores to serve for a short amount of time. And and then we're going to throw them on the pile with all the rest. I mean, we it, it's sort of like them Amazon factories where you just squeeze as much labor out of them as you can and then toss them. Can we get them to piss in a jug? Look, I, there are a couple that did it without our asking. <laughs> Let's jump into this one. Our movie opens up, and but we're continuing a perfect streak of movie credits that I like. Short, sweet. We get a black screen with the Japanese symbols for the words rising sun and bright red. And the camera kind of zooms in towards these symbols. And in the background, there is the percussion of the taiko drums building mm-hmm. um, louder and louder. And we see Philip Kaufman getting top billing as the director diva and that's followed by sean connery wesley snipes then in english we see rising sun and then we hear a gong mm-hmm. <laughs> teddy must have liked that and then the movie starts yeah they don't bullshit around man yeah i i knew that you must have loved it as soon as i saw this opening i was like wow we really are four for four this season and that <laughs> cannot last <laughs> We start off with one of two framing devices in this movie. This one's quite off-putting. And if somebody just wandered into this movie theater a bit late, like missing all of the opening previews, you would clearly think you're in the wrong theater. Because it starts off in the Old West Mm -hmm. with this desperado on a horseback leading this tied-up woman on a different horse through this Mexican village. And then a dog just wanders out of a building with a fake human hand in its mouth. The dog with the hand is the one where you're like wait a second what's going on here (laughs) and that's when you pull back and realize like oh this is a video it's a video for karaoke or how do you say it bo karaoke So this guy, Eddie Sakamura, is making eyes at this statuesque blonde hanging out at the bar. Dude, Eddie Sakamura, I would put, I'd put a thousand dollars in a Kickstarter to see a movie just about the life and times of Eddie Sakamura. No kidding, man. He's the best character in this whole movie. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, not just because he seems to be living free and easy. Which is also true, but also because he has very clearly this Yakuza code of ethics kind of thing going on. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, you're right. I just want to see more about this character and what he's up to, and you can get rid of all the mystery and stuff. Or just follow him in the mystery. He's played by Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa? I think so. He was in those Mortal Kombat movies. Yeah. He's having fun with the role, and I like that when he's doing this karaoke. As you call it, Bo. Mm -hmm. He's singing uh, Don't Fence Me In. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll tell you what. Here's what I like about this up front, aside from nothing. Yeah. Is that as he's singing it, it's not the stereotypical like, oh, nobody can pronounce an L to save their life. All the L's are transposed with R's. Uh, So I like the fact that it's not gross right away. Like it takes its time to get to gross. Yeah, we get there pretty quick, but it does take its time. And they're having a little fun. As he's singing this song, he's got this entourage behind him. It's his 
his four buddies and they're all wearing black sunglasses and they're singing kind of this almost doo-wop style backup to him. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's here that the camera pans over to the bar where we see what can only be described as a noir-esque femme fatale. She's this platinum blonde in a classy black dress. She's the kind of dame that could stop a clock and make you go to church to confess things you were gonna do in advance, Bo. Oh, her legs go all the way up, Chad. She's a blonde, all right, and blondes mean trouble, just like brunettes and redheads. But that's another story. She, we will find out, is named Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl and Austin. Cheryl in Austin, and she sees Eddie singing his karaoke uh-huh. and decides that she's just going to take a powder yeah. to continue our noir dialogue. <laughs> and so she, she beats it. And he's like, it just walks off the stage in the middle of the song. And I like that his buddies are like, hey, where's Eddie going? We can't do this without him. This was good. This was a good rendition of this. This was one of our best. We paid $10 more to get a recording of this on a CD. Damn it. I just slipped the guy a five to give me the video with the dog in the hand. They all go outside and we immediately see that the sun is starting to come up and that there was nobody in that karaoke bar except for Eddie and his crew and a couple of career alcoholics. Yeah. Eddie Sakamura says, I hate it when you do that. And by that, I'm guessing her leaving before he finishes his cover of Don't Fence Me In. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Cheryl Lynn says, I wasn't having any fun. And Cheryl Lynn is played by runway model Tatiana Patiz, who was kind of a big deal in the 90s. She was a runway model. She was featured in that George Michael music video uh, for the I song Freedom in 1990. Yeah, that's our... You remember when supermodels were a big in deal? In the- <laughs> it's the one good thing that I got. I won't. Sorry. You remember when supermodels were a big deal in the 90s? Remember that? And like, you know, another thing was the big in the 90s. Remember, that was the rise of the celebrity chef. Remember that? Yeah. So she's this German supermodel. She looks a lot like Lauren Bacall in this movie. Eddie Sakamura, he gets real frustrated and he all but forces Cheryl in into his red Vector W8, a very expensive looking sports car with these flip up doors and no replacement parts to be found anywhere. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Sakamura says, don't you ever do that again or else. And Cheryl Lynn says, or else what? And he just slams the door and peels out of the parking lot to go get a fresh bagel and a cup of coffee because it's six o'clock in the morning. Actually, it's 6.43 a.m. as the overlay will tell us as this car drives off. Yeah. Because meanwhile, in a boardroom in L.A. on February 9th, 6.43, not that any of that matters. I both do and don't like that they give us a timestamp. I like that they're telling us where we are, Uh huh. but I don't think any of this other stuff matters, the date and the time. Well, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of anything the film as a whole yeah so it's like okay i mean you told me once and then every now and again somebody will say like well that was four days ago and you're like all right well yeah the camera pans over to this tall skyscraper and we get some menacing music and later we're going to find out that this building is the headquarters of the Nakamoto Company, not to be confused with the Nakatomi Tower from Die Hard. We cut inside this boardroom. There's like 20 people sitting end to end on this long boardroom table. One side is full of Japanese businessmen, all dressed in similar dark suits, and their papers are all tidy and orderly. Everything's in its place. And then on the other side of the table are a bunch of sloppy American businessmen with mismatched suits, and their papers are everywhere. There's barbecue sauce 
sauce spilled and empty Budweiser cans and Coca-Cola bottles. A gun sticking out of one of the briefcases. One of them just randomly flipping through a you-might-be-a-redneck-joke-of-the-day desk calendar. <laughs> Chuckling to himself, yeah. Hey, I might be a redneck. It's 7 a.m., Bo! Who scheduled this meeting at 7 in the morning? They're Japanese, Chad. It's up and at them, man. And also, Yoshida, who is the head of Nakamoto. We First off, we got to keep these people straight. Yeah. Mr. Yoshida, he's the boss man. That's right. The head of the Nakamoto company. Yes, and he is played by the fantastic Mako, is the uh, the actor's name, who's been in a ton of stuff. My personal favorite is he plays the, you know, squirrely and crazy magician from uh, Conan the Barbarian that helps restore Conan to life after uh, Sandal Bergman brings his body back. It's a much more streamlined story. It, it does harken back back to the actual Conan stories from Robert E. Howard and it, it captures that spirit really well. The guy who wrote those stories shot himself in the head. That ended badly. Yeah, well. You can't win them all, huh? A mentally unbalanced fantasy writer <laughs> in the, what, 30s or whatever for long without... Yeah, did you ever see that uh, Vincent D'Onofrio movie where he played Robert E. Howard? Oh, absolutely not. What were we talking about? What? Oh, Mako. Yeah, so he plays Yoshida. There's Ishihara is kind of the right-hand man of Yoshida. In the book, his name was Ishihiro. They changed it for the movie. I don't know why they did that. Huh, that is weird. I think it was just some lazy American screenwriter. Thought he got it right. was like, Ishihiro, Ishihira, whatever. He just did a find and replace when he realized that he'd misspelled it for half the script and just flipped a coin. All these Americans are sitting around wiping their grease-stained faces on the sport coat sleeves instead of using napkins that are tucked into their shirt collars. And then there are two Americans that are head of this company called Microcon. And they're whispering to one another and they're like, we gotta do this deal. But we got to wait for Congress to vote to help our big company business in America. And then we cut to, what was his name? Tanaka is the head of security. Yeah, yeah we cut to Tanaka and he's in this room filled with all these TV monitors. And he's not only watching the two heads of Microcon whisper, he's kind of like translating their quiet conversation into an earpiece that Ishihara, the number two, is wearing. On the table, there's a model of what appears to be a stealth bomber. And you're like, I wonder if that has to do with anything. Not really. Ishihara, he leans over to the only American on the side of the table that's filled with Japanese businessmen, and he says, they're gonna stall. Mm -hmm. Now, this lone American on the Japanese side, he's a real douchebag. He's our movie's asshole, Bob Richmond. Yeah. That's a pretty good name for an asshole. Our movie's asshole, Bob Richmond, he gets up to go take care of shit, and he walks to the other side of the table with all of our goofy Americans, and he bends down, and he's like, hey, boys, how's it going? Anything you don't understand? No. Great, great. Good to hear. Look, you need that research and development money, don't you? You know, just sign the deal and uh, let's head over to the titty bar okay and you got to keep in mind as he's saying all this that our movie's asshole bob richmond he's four feet across the table from these japanese businessmen that can hear everything that he's saying plus you have the eavesdropping security guard who's listening in and he whispers to ishihara that one of the microcon heads calls bob richmond an asshole which he is and it's played for laughs everything that bob richmond does is brought to you courtesy of cocaine Humor in a movie like this, I think, should be left to rich character development and not calling someone an asshole. Right. Or kicking somebody in the dick. It's just out of place. 
Mm-hmm. Let's cut to a cable news program, Bo. Starring our Senator Morton, who is played by Ray Wise, a.k.a. Leland Palmer from Twin Peaks, for those of you who are in the know. That's not me. I'm in the not know. Ray Wise is a great character actor. He pops up in all kinds of stuff. He's an actor who managed to get smarmy down. If there were a douchebag hierarchy in this movie, Bob Richmond number one. Absolutely. Number two with a bullet ray wise is there a number three no <laughs> i mean sean connery <laughs> he's a real jerk in this movie but we'll get to you th- it I, you know i didn't think that sean connery was as big a jerk as he is in other movies but sure but that's grading on the connery curve as we call it he didn't slap any women in this movie that's what i'm saying no but he yells at a lot of people for no good reason on this cable news program there's no logo in the corner to tell us that it's cnn i did recognize michael kinsey who hosted crossfire for a while Mm -hmm. he's like the main journalist that i identified here yeah it's definitely a crossfire style show and the whole deal is that they're discussing this microcon transaction that it might be bought by a japanese company which we just saw in the boardroom and senator morton is saying well i don't want this deal to go through because it would put too much control of valuable security assets into japanese hands so on this fake news show senator morton he says i'm voting no against the microcon sale to the japanese we come back to the boardroom and everybody's gone except for the two americans that own microcon there's like four or five japanese businessmen still hanging around including boss man yoshida-san mm-hmm. and his number two ishihara and the aforementioned movie asshole bob richmond and they're all watching this news panel show on tv that's mounted to the wall and they hear him say this and they all give it a collective ah shit yeah and then we cut over to cheryl lynn who is putting on some makeup in the all together. You see everything from the waist up. She's yeah. sitting in front of this big vanity and she's chain smoking. And Eddie is just hanging out watching her and he starts laughing at her. And she says, you know, Eddie, I just don't get you. And Eddie's response, because again, he is the best character in this movie is so what it's the best response that you can give to anyone who is just like picking a fight with you which is clearly where she's headed and as we'll later learn she is also brought to you by cocaine i'm assuming that they just got done having sex and they're also watching fake cnn with this fake roundtable show she's real interested in whatever senator morton is gonna do on this microcon deal because i'm thinking she owns stock in microcon and this is like her retirement plan because most concubines don't have a 401k (laughs) right but eddie's got a vested interest in this as well sure at any rate so they're keeping tabs and we'll learn all about that later in a very confusing explanation get used to it we get that a lot in this movie Bo. and i know we haven't talked about wesley snipes or sean connery we're getting to it so there's a big party going on at the nakamoto building it's on the 45th floor that's way high up we see our doofus american businessmen that were across the table earlier who are in the elevator and they're like, hey, don't forget to bow when you're bowed to. And Oh, yeah, yeah. I got to remember that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Look at that. There's some senators. And it's just them theoretically being the voice of the audience to say like, oh, these people are the rich and powerful here at this Nakamoto party. When they walk in, one of them says to the other, they're playing taiko drums in rhythmic fashion. Long ago, they were used to drive away evil spirits. I was like, do they drive away evil spirits now? 
I really like the taiko drums of this. I think all of that stuff is really cool. There's a flyby of some old Japanese men that are being photographed with a bunch of tall, pretty American women. Uh-huh. That's what money buys you here in the States. We also see that Eddie is there now. Uh-huh. He is going upstairs to look for Cheryl. And then we cut to this mystery man having sex with Cheryl Lynn on the boardroom table. Yeah, he is going downtown, sir. All the lights are turned off except for three distinctly placed but not very effective overhead recess lights and it's here we get one of those 1990s era sex scenes that's supposed to make the audience feel what though uncomfortable embarrassed i mean it's certainly not erotic no 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 it is but it's supposed to be like passionate sex dude he's got his face buried in her crotch that's good work if you can get it that's poor actors and actresses I was in the George Michael video. I mean, it could be a body double for Alito. Who knows? <laughs> like, that makes it better. I'm body doubling for the person who's in the George Michael video. Back at the party, Ishihara, our number two, he gets a message in his earpiece, and then he looks up and makes eye contact with our movie's asshole, Bob Richmond. And then uh, Ishihara kind of gives him a knowing glance, like, yeah, we know what's up. And then, Bo, there's a quick Steve Buscemi sighting. Yeah, blink and you'll miss it. I'll be back later. You're like, wait, was that Peter Lorre? Couldn't be. He's dead. Those <laughs> bug eyes and bad teeth can only belong to one person. Right. I was looking for Bugs Bunny to show up to do a Peter Lorre joke. <laughs> we see that, and then upstairs, the lovemaking continues, Chad. You call it lovemaking. I call it violent sex. And the drumming bills. Yeah. Which, you see what they're doing there, Bo? They're making the drums. It's, it's the backdrop to this uh, this sex that's happening. And Sherilyn gets her panties just ripped off by this unnamed oral sexologist. Mm -hmm. And But we get a shot of her pubic hair. Mm -hmm. And then the mystery man just rips off her shirt, exposing her breast, which, boring, I've already seen those. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they keep her clothed earlier? And then during this scene, when he rips her clothes off, it feels more... A climax or something? It's like we saw her just like, like put a robe on her. She didn't need to be sitting there nude, chain-smoking, watching the news, which is what I do most mornings. I think this comes from a filmmaking perspective that's like, this is who this character is. That is what she is for in the in the context of the film is that she is there strictly because she is a beautiful woman. And so you're not saving the nudity. It's just, that's who she is. That's what the character is. These movies were so gross. We come back to the drummers faster, faster, and then we go back to the sex scene, and then these two start to engage in a little breath play. He starts choking her at her behest. Uh-huh. And she is into it, Chad. Choking during sex, that can be done alone or in pairs, much like playing with a slinky on stairs. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever been with somebody who really liked to be choked? Those are fun rides. I'm not saying I enjoy it as a recipient, but I definitely uh, had some relations with someone who really enjoyed being choked. And I was willing to, uh, you know, offer my services, as it were. <laughs> I'm not saying it's for everybody, but Chad, it was kind of hot. I want you to look in uh -huh. the booth right now. Uh-huh. The, the three faces that are helping us to record. Look at those faces. Yeah. Do you see that? Two of them are shocked and the other is curious. And the curious is where I landed too. <laughs> so uh, they start uh, 
choking each other out because, uh-huh. you know, she wants to have a more intense orgasm. As we're building to the climax of this scene, the movie just cuts away to Wesley Snipes answering his telephone. Right, you go from <laughs> one sex scene to the next where you just get 90s beefcake Wesley Snipes. Hey baby, it's me, Wesley Snipes, special service liaison for Asian crimes. Talk to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, my precocious 10-year-old daughter is nearby blowing bubbles with a bubble gun. That's right. I'm a family man, someone with whom the audience can sympathize. We learn later that the call comes from harvey keitel who we will see in just a bit dude the original bad lieutenant we got both mr white and mr pink in our movie bo in addition we then cut to a basic instinct interview that is being conducted with wesley snipes at the center of it and who should be leading this but the Lord of Illusions himself, Chad. It's the second framing device for this movie. This interview interrogation. We've now jumped to the future. Mm-hmm. And they're talking to Wesley Snipes. Again, yeah, you're right. It is absolutely basic instinct. I was glad he was wearing pants and not a skirt. Because otherwise, we absolutely would have seen Wesley Snipes' dick. The interrogator asks him, what time did the call come in from the original bad lieutenant Harvey Keitel? And Wesley Snipes says, hey, baby, the call it came in at 9 p.m. on February 9th. That was four nights ago, which means tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Did all of you get your special lady something for tomorrow's big day? The lead investigator says, oh, no, Frank, uh, call Dancing Flowers and order my wife a dozen red roses. What do you mean that's a bakery owned by Melissa Joan Hart? Send her some cookies. Look, I'm, I'm interrogating Wesley Snipes, goddammit. Wesley Snipes, what happened after Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel called for the agent for the special services, which I'm guessing is you? And then we just jump back to Nakatomo Tower, where Cheryl Lynn's dead body lay lifeless on the boardroom table, and her legs are dangling off one end, and then the camera pans back, and we get to see that Harvey Keitel is our Bad Lieutenant for the first time, and he's on the phone, maybe with Wesley Snipes. I like the fact that he says, hey, we got a 601 one over here which is this woman lying dead on the table like a piece of sushi mm-hmm. and i assume that a 602 is lying on a table like an old shoe when he says that she's laying on her back like a piece of sushi it's a real strange metaphor it's the first shot across the bow that harvey Keitel is a deeply racist character in this movie and may in fact be playing the same character as he did in bad lieutenant do you think this is the most racist movie we've ever reviewed it's the movie that's about race the most but i don't think it's the most racist right you have racist characters for sure yeah but i don't think the movie necessarily portrays minorities in a bad or controversial light for the most part like stay away joe stay away joe way more racist wild wild west still way more racist i think that this is fairly even-handed like it still deals in stereotypes and things like that but it's not victimizing the japanese characters at all and it's not demonizing those characters those people are just people it is not a racist movie it's just a movie with a bunch of racist yes it's a movie with racism in it but it is not by itself a racist film like this is not birth of a nation i agree so we cut to wesley snipes and he's driving his car it's nighttime it's rainy and he's listening to an audio tape with the most basic phrases that a police officer would use when speaking to a Japanese person. It's things like, hello, I am a police officer. Can I be of assistance? And I was like, they hired this guy to be the head of the Asian crime team and he can't speak Japanese? Really? (laughs) He was the most qualified candidate for the job? There are moments where he kind of sounds fairly competent with his Japanese. There are times later where he's 
speaking fluent Japanese. I'm like, yeah. why is he listening to this audio version of Japanese for dumbasses? That's the big question is, why is he sometimes listening to these tapes that are purely for, like, this is the first audio tape in a series of 30. Right. But it also doesn't seem to understand a lot of what Sean Connery is talking about, which also seems strange. Wesley Snipes as a detective in this movie is the most incompetent detective that we've ever discussed on Pick 6 movies since Ben Affleck's Batman. He just stands around and does nothing. While he's on his way, the watch commander calls him and says... Oh, you need to go pick up this guy named John Connor, mm -hmm. not the guy from Terminator 2. Thank God. He ends up going to pick up Sean Connery from this very nondescript brick building. The, the guy downstairs is this Japanese guy chopping a fish with a big meat cleaver. Dude, these fish were huge. They look like Great Danes. Yeah, there was an orca in the mix, I'm pretty sure. I mentioned in the intro that Sean Connery was the inspiration for this character, John Connor, and the connection with Terminator. But in thinking about it a little more, I just think that Michael Crichton was like, mm, I'm going to name this character Sean Connery. No, I can't do that. How about Sean Connor? That's still too good. How about John Connor? That's not going to get me in legal trouble. Uh, Michael, have you seen a movie called The Terminator? I have not, nor will I ever. Did I write it? Did I direct it? Then I didn't see it. I read what I write and I write what I read kid <laughs> we also get some voiceover of this basic instinct interview again where they're asking him do you know who sean connery is and he says listen baby i didn't know who he was i'd heard of him but i'd never met him what i heard was he couldn't be trusted then he comes in on sean connery in this above a fish market apartment that has to stink to high heaven there's no way you could live there it's like every day somebody microwave fish for lunch wesley snipes shows up at sean connery's apartment he opens the door and sean connery says you're late be on time and then there's a cop off screen and wesley snipes just looks over and there's a sliding door that closes and an arm that comes on the outside and you assume it's a woman's arm mm -hmm. and then wesley snipes steps into the apartment and immediately gets chastised shoes take off your shoes you jackass you've been tromping through piss and trash filled streets of los angeles not to mention all of the fish guts and semen downstairs that's right i said semen the boys down there gutting those fish they got some very peculiar sexual fetishes you think i want my entire apartment smelling like a bunch of tripe take off your shoes look is, is it normal for the japanese to request a liaison officer of course not wesley snipe says hey baby this is an unusual assignment harvey Cattell called at nine o'clock and then i got a call from the boss man to say come pick you up oh wait wait, wait. you got called twice Oh, I wish I'd known this sooner. When? Yeah. You just showed up and told you this. So we have our first of many Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes in a car chit-chatting scenes. Oh my gosh, there's so many. It happens all the time in this movie. It's really what pushes the plot forward most of the time. Let me ask you, have you ever negotiated with the Japanese? No? All right, here's what you do. You take care of the negotiations. You don't refer to me. All right? You keep your jacket buttoned. If they bow, you bow back. Keep your hands at your side. Don't wave them around like a crazy man. Keep your voice even. Don't lose your temper. And when you get in trouble, which you will, you're going to hear me step up and say, perhaps I can be of assistance. All right? And then I'm going to take it from there. This isn't some rap video MTV culture. Everything you do reflects on you and your department and me, your senpai. And this is where Wesley Snipes says, senpai? Is that like Massa? Oh, what? 
what? This is not the spice that this movie needs. What are we doing, Rising Sun? I get that Michael Crichton was worried that casting Wesley Snipes in this role would somehow heighten the race relations between the Japanese and black people. But it turns out that it just hyped good old fashioned homegrown organic American racism. Yeah. Sean Connery is like, what? No, that's not what I said at all. Listen, it's more you're an apprentice, uh, a, a friendly fellow that learns from me. It's not plantation style. I'm the shimpai, the senior man, and you're the kohai, the junior man. It's like Yoda and Luke Skyhopper or Burgess Meredith and that boxing fellow. Listen, the fact that you got those two phone calls means they're ahead of us. You should presume that they know everything about you when they get in there. They're two steps ahead of you. You got two calls. That's two steps, all right? These people are good at math. Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel meets him at the entrance as they arrive at the Nakamoto building. He's like, what the fuck is going on here? So, hey, the, the watch commander called me, told me to bring Connery, baby. It's cool. Harvey Keitel kind of lets Wesley Snipes know, like, hey, this guy's not a fucking team player over here, all right? He's a little too close to the Japanese if you get my drift. And listen to this bullshit. The Japanese, they don't want us to disrupt their grand opening upstairs they made us move all of our police cars around back finding that blonde piece of sushi upstairs drove them nuts i call her a piece of sushi it's a microaggression towards these people i say these people also as a microaggression it's kind of my thing it's more subtle than overt racism which is kind of you know my bread and butter i'm trying something new my plan is that if i do enough microaggressions that's like a macroaggression it's like stacking up three big macs calling it a supermac i trademarked that but i got sued it's like that time that you brought in those oreo double stuffs and i was like whoa whoa whoa! what if we put two double stuffs together then you got a quadruple stuff i'm doing that but it's like a quadruple stuffed oreo of racism that i'm yeah. doing remember that time i took three guns and i duct taped them together to make one super gun it's like that but with racism <laughs> so they get to this elevator to ride up to the 46th floor and the guy at the elevator is like no 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 you've already come down one time but he's an asian security guard it's important to note who he is absolutely and harvey Keitel is like guess what i'm gonna be coming up and fucking down as much as i want we're still the fucking police in our own country i got a sense that harvey Keitel's character may have fought either in vietnam or korea or had close relatives that fought in ww2 yeah he is not a fan of anyone of asian descent in this movie the fact that he's friends with wesley snipes is head scratching yeah he was definitely more tom berenger than willem dafoe <laughs> in the vietnam scenario as they ride up in this elevator bad lieutenant harvey Keitel says they built this fucking high-rise in six months they brought in all these prefab units from japan they slap it together not one american worker the city gave them an eight-year break on property taxes we're giving this country away and the elevator stops at the 45th floor and senator morton is coming into the car he's hey uh, how's everybody doing i just want to get down to the first floor and somebody has to like pull him off and be like senator you've had too much to drink well it's the asshole bob richmond who pulls him off you've had a little too much you've got a snoot full this elevator is going up not down and, and he's like but i wanted to go down i like when the elevator gets to that floor the voiceover it says in japanese you are now arriving at the 45th floor and sean connery translates it and harvey Keitel just yells out jesus if an elevator is gonna talk it should at least speak american very pointedly says it should speak american <laughs> 
So the doors close and they head up to the 46th floor, Mm -hmm. which was where the murder took place. And as they're riding up, you do get to hear more grievances from Harvey Keitel. That was Senator Morton. He's on the committee that drives all the economic laws and rules that impact the Japanese businesses or something because they're taking over the country. And there's like a ding. Executive boardroom, crime scene, watch your step. So our three leads head over to see this dead woman laying on the boardroom table. Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel, he walks over. Wesley Snipes accompanies him and they head over to Ishihara, our number two. Mm-hmm. And Harvey Keitel says, hey, I got your liaison here. Wesley Snipes immediately starts speaking fluent Japanese to this man and hands him a business card and bows. And I was like, does he speak Japanese or not? In the car, he was an idiot. Here, he's a scholar. What he's saying is, my name is Wesley Snipes. I don't speak this language. I have only learned this phonetically. Anything that you ask me, I will be unable to respond. Yeah, but Ishiar is kind of running resistance for the Nakamoto company. You know, this can't possibly be linked to the reception going on downstairs and that kind of thing. You don't need an investigation. This was a drug overdose, guys. You know, she ripped off her own panties and choked herself for a while to leave all those bruises and then she filled up her feminine area with semen it's open and closed detectives just get out of here guys we got this coming meanwhile we see that tanaka the head of security is walking around taking pictures and wesley snipes is like hey what's this guy up to now ishihara and snipes start to get a little heated over whether or not wesley snipes is going to have to go down and get a warrant to actually start actually looking at the body the escalation begins and that's where sean connery steps in and says, wait perhaps i can be of assistance here <laughs> ishihara immediately recognizes him because he's that famous actor from all the james bond movies <laughs> right yeah <laughs> weren't you in darby o'gill and the little people <laughs> yes i was so connery says listen i think we can dismiss all these guests here but before you do that, I'm going to need the name of all those old men standing over there with their old floppy dicks in their hands. And then Sean Connery, here's the first time he starts screaming at somebody. He laces into Ishihara. Yeah. And he's like, I want the names of all those old bastards. I want mug shots. This is your fault, Ishihara. Tell us who discovered the body. Give my detectives one of them. Don't fuck with us. And Ishihara, he just agrees instead of getting a smack in the puss from Sean Connery. Wesley Snipes, after this, says, I thought it was bad form to get angry in these negotiations, baby. And Sean Connery is like, listen, I did it to help Ishihara because otherwise he would have lost face. So I gave him a little bit of cover there because I'm always thinking three steps ahead. Unfortunately, you got another phone call. So now they're three steps ahead. See, he wasn't the most important man in the room. And to get the investigation moving along, I played the out-of-control guy, Jin. That's a foreigner. Also, Ishihara now owes me a favor. You see how this works, Wesley Snipes. This movie introduces Japanese terms like vocabulary words in a textbook. They'll say the word in Japanese and then immediately explain it. It is the flashcards of movies. <laughs> Sean Connery walks over and he pushes on a wall and there's a secret door that opens up and behind it is this naughty sex room. Uh-huh. Like right off the boardroom of the high rise, it's got a king size bed with pink curtains and pink satin sheets. Wesley Snipes enters and he rubs the top of the bed. He's like, ooh, I like this. He also refers to it as the fuck chamber. Yeah, an executive fuck chamber chad is how he phrases that yeah if i walk into a room like this bow i I treat it like a soccer match i'm not letting my hands touch any 
anything because I know there is semen residue everywhere on the sheets, the side tables, the lampshades, the fan blades. It's everywhere. I like the fact that Sean Connery was just instinctively drawn to it. Like, hang on, stand back here, Wesley Snipes. Hey, I smell something over here. I sense a place that you can get a really good Roger in. Oh, it is a hidden bedroom. I've got three of these in my house. And so the body ends up getting photographed. Like they get the permission to examine it and a medical examiner shows up. What is Sean Connery doing examining this body, Bo? Does he have any experience in this field or is he just a curious onlooker? I'm not exactly sure what his job is at all in this movie ever. This female medical examiner is there. She's real casual about all this. And she's like, "Mm -hmm. her genitals, they look pretty raw. There's seminal fluid in them. That's gross. Looks like forced entry, but I'm not sure she was murdered. She's got makeup on her neck covering up old bruises. It could be sexual aphasia. Yeah. Sean Connery has a better word for it. He goes, oh, so she was a gasper. Yeah, she likes your rock just like your mother, Trebek. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate lesson of this is like, well, it looks like she just went too far this time. Death by inhibition is what it's going to be called. Wesley Snipes finds some Japanese credit cards in her wallet along with some money and a Kentucky driver's license. It sort of suggests like she is from Kentucky, but she is clearly being a kept woman these days by one of these Japanese businessmen. Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel, he jumps in. Eh, these little guys, they eat shit all day long. They cram into subways, work for big companies. Then they come over here and get rich for free. And all they want to do is fuck the Rose Bowl queen. Wish somebody would come along and make America great again, if you ask me. Connery shuts him down so fast. Uh, the way <laughs> yeah. he's like, show, that's what they want to do, and then they want to kill him in their boardroom and create a giant scandal for their company, as well as the threat of arrest, you stupid son of a bitch. Connery walks away, and Harvey Keitel tells Wesley Snipes, go tell Sean Connery that whoever kisses the most Japanese ass wins a free Toyota. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? Am I? The cherry on the racist Sunday that he has in this scene is a guy walking by Harvey Keitel and saying, hey, me and the boys got a little sushi downstairs. You want some? And he goes, hey, if I want some fucking mercury, I'll eat a thermometer, okay? It just doesn't <laughs> end with this guy. Sean Connery tells Leslie Snipes, in Japan, criminals expect to get caught. Convictions run like 90%. That's because most people just confess. They're kind of stupid. It's a culture infused with shame that spills out onto the family name. Now, in the United States, it's about 70%. But I just made that number up. Right? <laughs> now, the Japanese think we're stupid and corrupt. And I don't think they're wrong. Also, the Japanese are freaky weird about the number four. Don't buy things in groups of four or be held to pay. That's why the Beatles never made it big in Japan. They'd been the Fab Five. Would have been a whole different story. Hang on a second. I got an idea. And then he stops the elevator and a voice comes over the intercom in this elevator is like, hey, is everything okay in there? And he goes, yeah, where the hell are you? Uh, I'm down the security office across from the desk in the lobby. We'll be right there. They show up and the security guard is played by actor Stan Shaw, mm -hmm. who we last saw in Cutthroat Island as Mr. Glasspool, mm -hmm. Gina Davis's right-hand man in that movie. He actually appeared in two Michael Crichton movies in his career. And Bo, I got a feeling we might be seeing Mr. Stan Shaw in just a few weeks. Yeah, I watched a lot of this season's movies over the course of a weekend and seeing him pop up twice. It was like, oh, it's a real Stan Shaw ganza. Also, Stan Shaw, 
for those who don't know, is a black man, which is important for the conversations that are about to take place. Yeah, so he meets up with them and, and says that there are all these extra cameras in the boardroom that are used to monitor negotiations. They eavesdrop, and they can read lips, like those guys from Microcon. Sean Connery says, Microcon? That's that computer chip company. There's a vote coming up in Congress that involves Senator Morton for anybody who came in late to the theater. Look, <laughs> pull up the cameras on the boardroom. Use that little gizmo. Can you zoom in? Show me how it works. Interesting. Do you record my laser disc? Hmm, just get the disc for the 46th floor. Wait a minute. Timer for the 46th floor only shows two hours of recording time, and all the others are at 10. The original disc isn't even here. Also, what's that camera behind that air vent recording us now doing? Bunch of pervert. Yeah, he even finds a package for like a new disc. Well, listen to this, pal. You're not a lot of hot water. Stan Shaw says, look, man, I wouldn't know anything about this. Look, this is a good job. Don't fuck this up for me. When something around here gets broken, I tell somebody and it gets fixed. This isn't like when I was working at the GM plant. This is a good company. And, and Connery says, oh, right. You're part of a team, are you? Wesley Snipes jumps in on that. Hey, baby, you're a part of a team. They spotting for you. They sending you in plays. Maybe they got instant replay. And then he gives a rude gesture where you like fold your arms. I really don't know what it means. Yeah. I've only seen it in movies that are about Italian Americans. Yeah. Is that racist? <laughs> Probably. It's tough to say. And pretty much everything is these days. So Sean Connery's like, all right, quit fooling around with a camera, Wesley Snipes. I'm going to go call in a favor. And he leaves. Yeah, he takes off. Stan Shaw, now that it's just the boys, uh -huh. is like, Hey, let's look at some of these women at the party, huh? Look at this one. I'm going to use this gizmo to zoom in on this lady right here. And Wesley Snipes is like, oh, baby, that is my ex-wife. She's a lawyer. Yeah. And Stan Shaw says, hmm, must be nice to fuck a lawyer instead of having them fucking you up top. Wait, why are you leaving me hanging? Yeah. For everything that they changed in this, and there's a lot, they could have just edited out the whole daughter and ex-wife storylines. It adds nothing to the movie. Absolutely, yeah. And give a little more air to the actual mystery that you're trying to solve. That would be great. I read this book years ago. Mm -hmm. But one of the things in rewatching the movie that I thought would, would have been clever, it would have been a, probably a huge deviation from the source material, is if the whole mystery had taken place in one night. And it's L.A. and it's raining and things are just sort of topsy-turvy and out of kilter. But they don't do that. There are elements of traditional noir that show up here and there in this movie. But then... On the back half of it, they just sort of leave all of that alone. There are moments where it almost becomes like an action movie. You mean when the karate happens? The karate, the car chase, that kind of thing. It's like, I don't want any of this in this movie. Like, this needs to no. be the movie Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington. Yes. Terrific uh -huh. mystery. Was that based on a Walter Mosley novel? It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fantastic film and doesn't ever descend into an action movie. It's just a mystery. Right. And it's characters and discovering the dirty underbelly of the situation and so forth. It was really good. And that's what this movie needed to be. And especially the karate scene. We'll get to it later but it does feel like somebody was making studio notes and was like why is wesley snipes not kicking anybody in the face while they're ogling wesley snipes's wife stanshaw also lets it drop that he has seen sean connery and mr yoshida together before and he's like yeah they're friendly i've seen him drop by lots of times well they see sean connery at the party he walks over to mr yoshida the head of the company and he kind of whispers to him. So that's where he calls in the favor that he was talking mm -hmm. about. And then Sean Connery turns around and he pantomimes the 
car driving steering wheel thing. Stan Shaw says, what does that motion mean? And Wesley Snipes says, Massa wants me to get the car. That's right. Wesley Snipes, I'm trying to keep an open mind here, but you drove. Yeah. This is your investigation. Am I missing something? You have the keys, and this guy that you have been assigned with is telling you, meet me at the car. Right. It does feel like he is a little sensitive, because nothing that Sean Connery has said other than the senpai stuff, which I don't read as being overtly racist. No. So, but anyway, so they they go outside. We see that Senator Morton is wheeling around his wife, who apparently can't walk. She's in a wheelchair. That party had to suck for her. It was packed with people. You know she got a few farts to the face. Absolutely. And you know that he just kind of shoved her in the corner and was off doing his other stuff. I mean, we really know uh, that he was doing something uh, later. But so a lot of reporters are asking, like, Senator, Senator, what about your stance on the Microcon merger? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's a it's a party tonight, everybody. Everybody chill out. But Senator, we heard that if you vote yes on this, the Japanese will take over all American technology. And they're going to take over the making of apple pies. Is that true, Senator? Oh, that's uh, uh, outrageous. We have apples for days in this country. Nobody's going to be outsourcing apple pies. And uh, they are buying Sir, baseball. we understand that Fuji apples are the, the most popular apples in America now. Oh, far surpassing Red Delicious. Oh, son of a... Get, get me out of here, Jefferson. So while he he's taken off, uh, Bob Richmond shows up uh-huh. and sees wesley snipes at the car oh my god and says hey can you bring the senator's car over please and wesley snipes says wrong guy wrong fucking century penguin looking motherfucker that's actual dialogue from the movie i do like the wrong guy wrong fucking century i have to admit like i like wesley snipes i'm a bit of a fan of his i don't think he's often served by the movies that he's in but i think he's a talented guy and i do like his delivery of that he's got a couple of deliveries in this movie that i really like it's so interesting that they cast him in this movie and he's so grossly underutilized in the movie yeah He just hangs around and watches Sean Connery solve this crime. Yeah. And when they do get him to do something, that's where it gets into the somewhat inadvertent racism of the film. But we'll get to that in a minute. So Bob Richman, our movie's asshole, he comes over and knocks on the window and he says, let me smack that guy. Like this is his plan, Bo, to just assault a black man that he thinks is a valet for getting mouthy. Mm-hmm. Bob Richmond immediately recognizes Sean Connery and he says, Hey, look, let me know, Sean Connery, if I can help in any way. It's me, Bob Richmond, movie asshole extraordinaire. <laughs> Wesley Snipes here calls Bob Richmond an asshole and they drive off into the rainy night with Sean Connery riding shotgun. And Connery does say, I knew that asshole when he was working as a trade negotiator, working with the Japanese. Now he works for the Japanese. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Yeah, so they go to Cheryl Lynn's apartment, which is a block of flats called a Bataku, uh, which is another of the flashcard moments of this movie. I like the front desk security guy. He's this Japanese dude, and he's wearing sunglasses, and, I, and it's night, and he's inside. I was like, is he blind? No, nah, he's just Yakuza, man. He's just cool. Is that the standard uniform? You always have to wear sunglasses? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, some aviators if possible. I like that when Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery walks in, Wesley Snipes says, uh, hey baby, we need the keys to Sherilyn Austin's room. And he just, he flashes his badge 
And the security guard just lets him in. Mm -hmm. I'm like, dude, you're not very good at your job. Don't they need a search warrant? I get that all of this is below board, but even still. I think this is a situation of like, I'm going to let this go because if I cause a fuzz and create a situation where a warrant is needed, they're Uh, going to uncover a lot more heinous stuff that we do not want any part of here at this Bataku. Yeah, this is where Sean Connery says, you know, that doorman, he was Yakuza. That's a crime syndicate out of Japan. It was also a very popular video game on the PlayStation 2 video game console, which was made by Sony. That's a Japanese company. There's a whole series of the games. The last one was a turn-based combat game, which was a real diversion from the series. They're making a sequel to that one. And this is a Bitaku. It's a love residence where people keep their holes. That's where we are now. See all those scantily clad women? dancing about those are holes also did you notice that while they walk through this place the b-52's love shack is what's playing mm-hmm. what do you think they play in like a, a home for whores besides that like roxanne uh kickstart my heart by motley crew i think is on that pl- playlist fancy by reva mcintyre i touch myself I'm Tired by Bernadette Peters from the Blazing Saddles soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah. Can't you see I'm pooped? (laughs) They just, just periodically, you get the B-side from the best little whorehouse in Texas. Probably with the exception of I Will Always Love You. That (laughs) probably brings (laughs) the room down. That's that's why, because that's on the (laughs) A-side. So they get to Cheryl Lynn's apartment. As soon as they open the door, Sean Connery says, Listen, Wesley Snipes, when did the rain start? And Wesley Snipes is like, well, it was after nine, baby. Look at the floor. And sure enough, there are wet footprints to suggest. Uh (laughs) A clue. (laughs) You know, in in Japan, they have vending machines where you can buy little foot covers to keep your house from getting wet when it rains. They also have vending machines that sell like food and snacks and electronics and even ladies' undergarments, clean and pre-soiled. I have to treat that like a casino. I just put... (laughs) Pull $60 at the ATM and I say, no more, Sean. I only spend this much (laughs) at one of those vending machines. I lost two houses to that. One time in Japan, I got pulled over by the local authorities. They asked me to empty my pockets. And I swear to God, I looked like a goddamn magician, pulling out colored panties left and right, throwing them about. They let me go because they were embarrassed by me. One of my pockets, just (laughs) one side, stained. Could not get it out. (laughs) <laughs> Look like I dropped some mayonnaise on my leg. So they're snooping around in this apartment. If you're a viewer paying attention, you'll see that there's this Japanese ad featuring Cheryl Lynn on the wall. Wesley Snipes finds some good cocaine, apparently. He just runs his finger through it and puts it in his mouth. I'm like, that's the wrong hole, Wesley Snipes, if you want to have a good time. They then investigate the bed where there are straps that you can use to tie somebody down. And they find a plastic bag, Mm -hmm. which implies that Cheryl Lynn was into having someone put a bag over her head while they have sex. Now, I get that when you have sex and someone puts their hand on your neck, like you you can still breathe. But if you put a bag over your head, Bo, you're going to pass out and die. Let me tell you about this other girl I dated, (laughs) Cheryl. (laughs) <laughs> so there's also a picture of Eddie 
uh, with Cheryl and her her uh, mother or potentially grandmother. Oh my, dude, they're in rural Kentucky, and this grandmother has a facial expression that perfectly matches what it was like for this rural old lady to meet her blonde daughter or granddaughter's Japanese boyfriend, which is to say, not happy at all. Yeah. And it turns out that Sean Connery knows Eddie. Hey, this is Eddie Sakamura. He's one of the greatest goddamn karaoke singers of our generation. Let me go check out the bathroom. There might be some soiled panties or, or used ladies' feminine items in there. That's another thing that I've really gotten into. And Wesley Snipes finds this this mall photo booth strip of pictures of Eddie and Cheryl Lynn. And while he's up to that business, Sean Connery goes over to the mirror and gives it a... <sighs> he breathes hot air from his mouth and he sees that two pictures have been recently taken. Yeah. Yet another clue. Wesley Snipes, are you a detective? Like, are you doing any... What do you do? What he does, Chad, is get completely sidetracked. Oh, yeah. Because into the scene comes Julia. This blonde-headed horror that just wanders in. Yeah, a scantily clad neighbor. And she says, oh, are you Cheryl's backdoor man? And oh he says, God. yeah, uh, I am, baby. And she says, oh, well, if you are, I've heard about you. But I gotta warn you, Eddie's the jealous type. Look out for crazy Eddie. Basically throwing a lot of suspicion on Eddie here. Is Cheryl alright? And Wesley Snipes says, hey baby, Cheryl's dead. Oh my god. I knew that Eddie Sakamura would kill her. He shouted at her, Cheryl, I will kill you tonight at a party. She ends up telling him this story about how Cheryl and Eddie met. But Wesley Snipes is just staring down the, like, because she's got a button-up shirt on that's opened up and some fairly granny-style panties, if we're being honest. But he's taking it all in. He's not listening to a word she's saying. Well, as she tells the story, she's just running her fingers up her thighs to her crotch. Yeah, getting him all horned up and whatnot. Then, though, the camera goes all blurry. As you're looking at her, and I was like, wait, was that cocaine laced with a bunch of veterinary prescribed sedatives? Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to the car where things are still blurry, and I'm like, wait, so Wesley Snipes is high on cocaine and horse tranquilizers, and then things <laughs> come back into focus where Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes are just riding through the rain at night again. Sean Connery, very rightly, is like, well, you were just a piece of shit in that interview. Wesley Snipes barks, hey, baby, that blonde was going to give up the murderer and you just walked away and left all that cocaine on that mirror. Listen, talking to this Julia girl was just a little too convenient. She's a messenger. The bad guy sent her. You didn't hear what she said, baby. She said Eddie Sakamura killed Cheryl. He was screaming and shouting he was going to take her to a party tonight to kill her. She was reading off a piece of paper in her hand. Why would she lie? All they managed to do is to slow you down, Wesley Snipes. She wasn't going to give up anything unless it was a free ride on the Janet's Express. And I'm talking about her, her, her vagina. Listen, once you go Scottish, you never go back. And she was giving me the side eye. She was talking to you, sure. But I knew where her bread was buttered. Wesley Snipes, he's still pissed off at Sean Connery. I don't know why. And Wesley Snipes says, uh, hey, baby, senpai, apple pie, whatever you want to call me, we have a murder to solve. Yeah. So they go to, I think it's Eddie Sakamura's place. 
It's the after party after the Nakatomo party. Yeah. And it's Eddie Sakamura. He's dancing with a blonde and a redhead that are dressed like flappers. Senator Morton's there and his sad wife in her wheelchair. She's (laughs) there too. And there's some guy playing the Chattanooga Choo Choo song on the piano. That poor woman in the wheelchair. I half expected Michael Caine to show up with slick back hair and a pencil thin mustache, giving it the Z. We are having uh, so much a good time. Why don't you get up and join us, Mrs. Senator Morton's wife? You can walk if you try. Oh, and be a read. I wish there was a movie, and maybe there is, in which you pair Michael Caine and Sean Connery together. The Man Who Would Be King? Yeah, that sounds too legitimate. That doesn't sound like a movie we could do. Directed by John Huston. Oh, see, that almost sounds too good. But we, I know. I, I, we need to check it out. So there's a bouncer at the door when Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes show up and he's like, look, you can't go in. Did you recognize this bouncer? No. This is Tony Ganeos, a.k.a. the guy who got an ice pick in the eyeball in Die Hard 2, a.k.a. meat from the movie Porky's. Oh, wow. Apparently this was his last movie ever. He retired to go sell insurance. Yeah, it's probably for the best. Tony says, parties by invitation only, fellas. And Sean Connery's like... Yeah, but I'm here to see Eddie Sakamura. Just tell him I'm here. Tell him Sean Connery's here. He'll know what it's about. Eddie Sakamura's not here. I can see him right there, you son of a bitch. He's dry humping that blonde and that redhead at the same time. Next to Senator Morton, who's doing the same thing with that black chick and that Asian chick. Who's that woman weeping in the wheelchair? That's terribly sad. Look, fellas, I don't want to have to send anybody to the hospital tonight, but I have to warn you, I'm a black belt. And so is my buddy Jeff, who's coming over. Sean Connery just throat punches Tony. Oh, how about this? Shuck a punch. Hi-ya! <laughs> the guy just drops. He's like, what about you, Jeff? You want a little <laughs> a little sausage and biscuits, too? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. I'll let Eddie Sagavara know you're here. <laughs> and then Eddie just walks over and he's like, Sean Connery's son! Come inside! We're dancing to Chattanooga Choo Choo! Ignore the crying woman in the wheelchair. She's real sad. I don't know who brought her. Yeah, and then Sean Connery's like, listen, Eddie, this is about the murder at Nakamoto tonight. He's like, oh, eh, maybe we ought to take a walk outside. Yeah, I think that'd be best there, Eddie. Look, Eddie, the dead girl, her name was Cheryl Austin. And Eddie says, hmm, Cheryl Austin. Yeah, I know her. She was a real hentai. Now, Bo... Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a hentai was, and mm-hmm. they don't explain it in the movie. So I did a quick Google search for it, <laughs> oh. and the top results included domains from xvideos.com, pornhub.com, xnxx.com, spankbank.com, and hentai heaven. Mm-hmm. And after unsuccessfully exploring these websites for seven or eight hours, I finally did a search for a hentai definition, and I got this. A genre of Japanese manga, am I saying that right? I think so. And anime characterized by overly sexualized characters and sexually explicit images and plots. Which I think that that's what I saw on all those other websites. Sure. I saw an octopus have sex with a woman. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. You know why that is? There, There's no. a reason for that. Okay, so Japanese pornography does not allow the filming uh, or the presentation of actual penetration. And so the way that Japanese porn filmmakers got around that was to have tentacles as the means of penetration, which was not off limits, just the pee pee. 
And so that's where it came from. Now, was it the smartest route to go? Perhaps not. The answer is no. I think the reason that we haven't had encounters with intelligent life from other planets is this. They found us and they see shit like that. And they're just like, no, thank you. We're good. I think they are less concerned with that than they are all the homelessness and starvation. The rampant warfare, the climate problems, like those seem to be the things that they would be like, maybe this species is not on the up and up. If you could imagine a world where pornography didn't exist, okay, if that wasn't a thing, right? Uh And then you engaged with another species, and they make movies of people, like, having sex. Yeah. And then they just jerk off to it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying you should do it all the time. To your point, you could go make a sandwich for somebody. After you wash your hands, of course. But every now and again, you know, you just gotta, gotta release the pressure valve a little bit. So... Sean Connery says, look, Eddie, we know you were putting Cheryl up at the Imperial Arms. And Eddie says, all right, Sean Connery, son, look, Cheryl was a sick girl. She liked pain. She liked to be choked. She wanted me to put a plastic bag over her head. She liked playing Johnny Space Commander. Remember the old Dan Aykroyd SNL sketch where he was Erin Mainway? That's what she wanted to do in bed. She was weird. I like the fact that he says, you know me, Sean Connery. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. Breast meat, thigh meat, white meat, dark meat. I like the pink parts and the purple parts. You know what I'm saying, Sean Connery? Yeah, and so he says, look, I took her to the party, sure, but I'll do you a solid. If you'll let me slide for a little bit here, I'll bring you something that you want. All right, but give me your passport, you son of a bitch. Well, he tells it. If you let me go, I can get something that'll prove my innocence. Come on, I'm I'm crazy Eddie. You can trust me. I'm insane. He's like, you make a compelling argument. So they agree to it, but on their way out, they see some of Eddie's guys hanging out around a pickup truck, like this pale blue pickup truck that, you know, somebody is clearly being hidden from view in that truck. And so we don't see who it is, but there's something fishy with that. Senator Morton's also watching all this suspiciously. This movie has four suspects who could have killed Cheryl Lynn. Yes. Throw a dart and there are very good odds you're going to be right. (laughs) Right. Because there, yeah, there aren't that many characters you you know it's not the old man it's not sean connery right it's not wesley snipes right cheryl lynn did not kill herself right it's not harvey Keitel. it's not steve buscemi it's not the woman in the wheelchair <laughs> although that would have been a good twist oh that would have like been presumed good. innocent yeah like she wheeled in and killed her that would have been good nice little twist there uh-huh uh boy that's a boring movie we saw that in the theater together yeah when we were younger and halfway through the movie you leaned over and you were like the wife killed her and i was like how the fuck did you know that yeah <laughs> because i've seen movies before because it's not that good a story and going to, <laughs> you and i going to see presumed innocent is like millhouse and his buddies chanting barton <laughs> fink on the way to that i'm such a dumbass when i see movies i don't see anything being telegraphed like i saw the princess bride and i was the one shithead that was like wait a minute that's wesley (laughs) the dread pirate roberts is wesley (laughs) that's a true story that i was like what (laughs) yeah i still believe in magic bo 
I believe in magic. It's kind of a problem when I'm watching movies <laughs> with like friends and loved ones because I do have this unnatural talent yes. for about a third of the way through the movie being like, oh, okay, I know how this is going to end. You looked at the poster for Knives Out and you're like, did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, I'll tell you, the great thing about Knives Out is they tell you who did it right away. And then the rest of the movie is just watching the detective get there, but it's so entertaining that it yeah. doesn't matter. Like, Knives Out's brilliant. But anyway, so they go back to the car because, of course, we have another car conversation with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. There's more car conversations in this movie than Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty racist movie, but in a good way. I don't know that you can be racist in a good way, but all right. <laughs> so Sean Connery tells Wesley Snipes, listen, Eddie's father saved my life, so I'm cutting him a little slack. And Wesley Snipes says, oh, did he remind you of that? And he says, no, no, no. He's too good a guy and too Japanese to do something like that. Also, let me tell you about business. Business is war. And you and I... We're in the war zone. While they're having this conversation, there are a lot of B-roll shots of homeless people along the side of the road. I kept wondering in this film, and maybe you can help me out with this. Okay. I don't know if Philip Kaufman is trying to say... America sucks? Yeah, uh, kind of, right? That, that like... For all the faults in the Japanese culture, they're presented as being more refined and more erudite. And the fact that they have this code of honor makes them superior to just the random dumbass Americans in this movie. And I don't know that's wrong. I mean, again, you know, the Japanese culture is a thousand years older than ours, so they've got some stuff right, but... I think there is a better interpretation of this movie that could be made. Even today, I think you could remake this and make it better. Mm -hmm. But you really have to pick and choose what elements of the book you want to include in the film. And in a book, when you read it, you have more time for things to breathe and develop and unfold. And in this movie, there's so much exposition that gets crammed into these drive and talk scenes, or it's, you know, it's kind of like a law and order where they just chit chat and they share information. It's more organic in a different form of media, like a, a novel. I think that some of the social commentary or even the differences of East and West or black people and white people, like all the things they're dealing with, to me, that just all feels disruptive to a good murder mystery yeah. that you could be telling. I do think that you could bring in the East versus West elements. I think in a story like this, you kind of need to paint with a broad brush. Don't get too nuanced. Make it like there are stark contrasts between these two. You don't need to pump the brakes and introduce some new Japanese terminology like it's an episode of Dora the Explorer. All of that, it just slows down the film's narrative. And this movie does move at a pretty good pace, but there are just speed bumps in the road that slow it down. Absolutely, yeah. They go back to the office where the medical examiner lady that we saw earlier is telling Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel and Wesley Snipes that, oh yeah, I checked out this semen and it both matched the phenotype of an Asian gentleman and it tasted that way too. Imagine that being your job, huh? <laughs> I mean... Isn't it all our jobs, kind of? Harvey Keitel does say, so the guy who fucked her was Japanese? We got a Jap perp? Oh, yeah. We get it! Yeah. You're racist! You don't have to convince me anymore, Harvey Keitel. You are, in fact, a bad lieutenant. So Ishihara is there, and he's making a show of giving this apology and handing over the missing security disc. Right. He's beside himself 
with shame. He's crying. Mm-hmm. There's snot coming out of his nose. He's a mess. And so we finally get a look at this security disc that was missing, which starts with this boardroom meeting, and they fast forward through that. And then we get to the murder. The way that the camera is kind of moving around the scenes, Wesley Snipes is like, well, somebody was using that gizmo, baby. As they're watching the murder, they see what we saw from the beginning of the film, essentially. He looks Japanese! That's what Harvey Keitel yells out when you see a shadow walk in the room. Yeah. Then we actually get a reflection in the glass as this guy is leaving after the murder, the, our mystery man. The choking. Uh-huh. The, the sex. And she goes dead. Uh-huh. And then he, he kind of like tucks it in. And then you see the reflection. And who is it, Bo? It's Eddie Sakamura. Now, Bo, we are 50 minutes in to a two-hour movie. Yeah. And for anyone who's ever watched an episode of Law & Order, if the case is closed, halfway through the episode and they're like a hundred percent we got our guy you pretty much know that that's not who did it. absolutely unless you're watching <laughs> knives out and you're in the hands of a master filmmaker <laughs> this is a knives out. after this reflection shows eddie off harvey Keitel is like what did i tell you guys go get him yeah what hey what do you need the word bonsai carved in her ass with a samurai sword yeah actual dialogue from the movie you think david mamet really took a crack at this absolutely (laughs) i think they just told rv Keitel to have some fun with this racist character take it for a test drive and they just kept all of his improv footage here's the dirty little secret is that you start reading some of those mamet plays it's a little (laughs) rough david mamet is very famous and also (laughs) very very misogynistic and very very racist you think you just broke the seal on a nice bottle of cognac and let the right. let the good times flow? Oh, are you telling me my name's not going to be on this? All right. <laughs> I got a couple of things to get off my chest then. <laughs> so uh, Sean Connery stays behind to check out some, some of the video footage. Then we go back to Eddie's where the two beefcake bouncers are just hot tubbing. Yes. Complaining about like, you know, boy, I wish that old man would show back up. I'd give him what for instead of sucker punching me like old men do. And they are immediately pointed guns at by the police as they're showing up. Sni- Wesley Snipes like puts his hand over one of the dude's mouths and they kind of subdue these guys and are surrounding the house. This is all the same rainy night where our movie started forever long ago. Yeah. And so Harvey Keitel and Wesley Snipes have a moment where they're kind of running together towards the house. With a bunch of blatant racism spewing out of Harvey Keitel's mouth about Asian people. And he says, look, I'm not a racist over here. I just want to catch the bad guys. So what if most of the bad guys are blacks and Asians (laughs) and Jewish people? Is that my fault? That white people are just genetically superior? And yeah, I mean, it's just nonsense. (laughs) It is crazy. It is so over the top how racist he is. How is he friends with Wesley Snipes? Yeah. Like, that that doesn't make sense. Wesley Snipes is his black friend. (laughs) This is what he tells himself to get to sleep at night. Inside the house, though, Eddie is eating sushi off of this naked blonde lady. And he's sitting with a redheaded lady. Yeah. I think it's the two women from the after party earlier, the ones yeah. that he was doing the Chattanooga choo-choo dance off with. <laughs> I think you're right. And th- this is just spilled over into late night stuff. The redhead pours some sake into a cup and Eddie dips her nipple in it and licks it off her breast. Yes. 
I felt bad for this actress, and I felt bad for him as an actor. Yeah, it's a little gross. What does Harvey Keitel say? Look at this asshole. He's plundering our natural resources. Of course. These fucking guys are into everything. So... (laughs) Eddie makes a phone call right before all the police rush in. He's calling Wesley Snipes, right? We find that out later. Yeah. Wesley Snipes gets attacked by the non-sushi naked lady while Eddie busts out the back. Well, the cops all bust in and it just turns into a melee. That naked chick rides him like she's at the rodeo. She's punching him and hitting him in the head. The police are going through the house. Eddie takes off out the back door. You see a sports car. Eddie's sports car. Eddie's sports car and a chase has ensued. They chase the the police, chase the car. It veers off the road, hits some construction work, and explodes. It's a big fireball. Yeah. I want to see the life and times of Eddie Sakamura. I I just want to follow him through this movie. It's a more interesting movie if you do that. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. Eddie Sakamura (laughs) is dead. Yeah. We should write that movie. (laughs) It wouldn't be that hard. You're absolutely right. The template is there and you just fill it in with cocaine and fucking. (laughs) And it would be great. (laughs) <laughs> no one would see that i would watch Except it us. they cut to this reporter and it's later that night so what it's what four in the morning this reporter is on air no she's not saying coroner reports that the charred remains are that of edward sakamura they were taken from the crash scene after a high-speed chase that we just saw in the movie the chief investigator or whoever he is from the framing device he shows up and he asks wesley snipes and bad lieutenant harvey Keitel, you got proof that sakamura killed the girl right and everything's by the book right and bad lieutenant harvey Keitel is like uh, yeah absolutely uh, Right, Wesley Snipes? Bite a book, right? Nothing racist about this at all, right? Tell him, I ain't racist. How can I be racist? You're my my black friend. Tell him. And then there is some voiceover where the Lord of Illusions guy once more says, but everything wasn't by the book, was it Wesley Snipes? And we cut back to that framing device. And Wesley Snipes, who luckily still hasn't uncrossed his legs and showed us his dick, he just says, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And so then we cut back to the past again. But it's the next morning. Yeah. And Wesley Snipes gets a phone call. It's like from dispatch. Yeah. Because Sean Connery made a request for Wesley Snipes to get a wake up call at 7 a.m. Because Sean Connery wants to meet Wesley Snipes at 9.15. The dispatch guy mentions, oh, yeah, well, you know, you've already got your other messages from last night wesley snipes says hey look i did a lot of cocaine i don't remember calling in the dispatch guy says well you called in at 233 and got your messages and then wesley snipes says oh yeah well, well give them to me again I, I you know i like the sound of your voice and then wesley snipes daughter comes in and she just berates her father for being gone all night and the daughter stays with i think it's her grandmother yeah which has to be wesley snipes mom but this old lady gives wesley snipes the stink eye oh yeah she doesn't like him either i like that the kid as he's waiting for these messages to come in is like hey can you tell me what business is and wesley snipes is like well it's complicated and that i don't really you know have the words for it right now the kid is like yeah mommy says you never had a a head for business do you think that's why she calls you a loser yeah and he's like get out of here (laughs) stupid kid is that supposed to make us like him more or pity him more or both or neither i don't know i maybe have some sympathy for him or something i I really don't know dispatch comes back on and says all right i got your messages um the weasel is checking up on you and wesley snipes says hey baby the weasel 
Polly Shore's looking for me? And Dispatch says, no, 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 no. It's a different The Weasel from the 1990s. Uh, you also have a message from Eddie Sakamura at 2.10 a.m. And then Wesley Snipes pops up from his bed like it's a Home Alone movie. He says, the message reads, urgent. Must talk to you about missing disc. Also, remind me to get brakes checked on my car. <laughs> They're starting to slip at high rates of speed. I just want to point out that you and I had the same Pauly Shore joke in our notes, and that is both uh, wonderful and terrible all at once. It's off to the golf course we go after this, where Sean Connery and Mr. Yoshida are playing golf, and because Sean Connery is amazing at everything in this movie, yes, he is incredible at golf as well. Wesley Snipes rolls up in a golf cart as Mr. Yoshida is about to take his shot and jumps out of the cart. Is like, hey, hey, I gotta, I gotta talk to you. The cart almost takes off on him, and he has to put that in gear. Meanwhile, Mr. Yoshida just shanks his shot while this is happening. Sean Connery's like, listen, Mr. Yoshida, I've just got to apologize for my kohai here and tell you that i insist that you take this shot over again because that was totally unfair what this jackass just did so we cut to wesley snipes and he's on the phone with some reporter at the newspaper Mm -hmm. who tells wesley snipes hey listen up wesley snipes last night the weasel no not Polly shore he shows up and he's wearing his tuxedo and he goes straight to the library and i could tell the ambitious little turd had the scent of blood Turd and blood are two words that should never be used in the same sentence outside of a colonoscopy sentence. And even then, it's bad news. Yeah, and Wesley Sipes is like, well, that, well, all that stuff was dismissed, baby. That's cool. I'm None of that matters. And he's like, hey, I'm just telling you what I know. The weasel is after you, man. He's like, I wonder who he's working for. And in the background, you see Steve Buscemi still lurking around this newspaper office, peeking through the window, listening to this conversation, maybe. Yeah. He was like, hey, look, the weasel got information on all those old charges. And I know this is a backstory that would unfold better in a novel, but we got to keep the screenplay moving along. Sean Connery rolls up on them as they're heading out of this golf club. Not for nothing. There's just this super high stakes poker game going on in the back room with a bunch of these Japanese businessmen. Right. Wesley Snipes says, you've got the disc, baby. So what is Eddie Sakamura talking about? Look, I saw last night on the news that Eddie Sakamura got burnt up in some sort of suspicious car trash. But there was no mention of a murdered, dead, blonde-headed girl from Kentucky who liked to have sex while our plastic bags over her head. You know what, Wesley Snipes? They said you fucked up leaving this dish with me, but now it's Eddie Sakamura who's dead. In Japan, when something gets fucked up, they fixed it. Nobody gets blamed, but in America, we're always looking for fucked up. Their way's better. And you know what else they do better? They got these little sex hotels where you can rent a room for an hour or two for a romp with your mistress or a quality prostitute. They don't have that here in the good old U.S. of A. This is another, like, Japan is better than America bit of... That's right. Here, we fuck it up. You just go down and you get another goddamn whopper, a quarter pound, and you put it in your fat goddamn face and watch Jerry Springer and listen to grunge music. America's a piece of shit country. As they leave... Uh, Wesley Snipes flips the valet who brought the car around some coin who immediately hands hands the coin back to Wesley Snipes and says, no, man, you need this more than me kind of thing. Wesley Snipes also, while this is going down, sees that Sean Connery is taking an envelope from Mr. Yoshida. One of the workers at the 
country club comes out and says, Mr. Yoshida wanted me to give this to you. Right. And so in the car, Sean Connery says, listen, I lost that last round of golf on purpose, which ain't easy because I'm amazing at everything. But I also learned that Eddie's death is going to have repercussions. Wesley Sipes is like, he was a murderer. He got what he deserved. We saw him on the disc and Sean Connery's like, oh. Did you? And there's this high-pitched violin string to create a sense of mystery and suspense. Yeah. So then they go to a basement of an ice skating rink where some half-assed college class is happening. What in the hell? It's some professor that's teaching like a digital media class or something like that. It's like Ventura Juco. Yeah. And so we meet here, Jingo is Tia Carrere's name in the movie, but it's Tia Carrere. Wayne Campbell's girlfriend from Wayne's World. Mm Mm-hmm. She's an expert at video editing technology. When they walk in, Sean Connery says, Oh, uh, hello, stranger, as we've never met before. This is our first time uh, in each other's presence. Wink, wink. Can you tell the audience we've never worked together before? There's no need to put your hand on a Bible or a Koran. I don't know where you're from. In this scene, Tier Carrere says, this video is fishy. They've added shadow to the face of the man who killed the girl. The reflection is off. Let's pull it up. And this is the part of this movie where we interject a little patented Michael Crichton advanced technology of the day. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because when they slow down the images of the guy who turns and looks in the glass and we see his reflection, where it was Eddie Sakamura, when they slow it down, Bo, the copy-paste of Eddie Sakamura's face on top of the person reflected is laughable yeah it looks like you cut out a picture from a magazine and just taped it onto a picture of yourself it looks like bullshit it's the first attempt at photoshop by a 12 year old and wesley snipes is like hey baby this can't happen and that's where tia career she like pulls a rabbit out of the hat and she's like oh really well while you were talking i've been recording you and what if i take your head and put it on sean connery's body and vice versa yeah and he's just like whoa whoa whoa, what baby he is stunned by this this movie came out the same year jurassic park came out. yeah tia career says to do this well they need photos of eddie from a couple of different angles wait a minute maybe they stole those pictures from that hole's apartment. And so Sean Connery goes off to do some bullshit, uh, leaving Wesley Snipes and Jingo alone. And Jingo is like, do you believe in ghosts? Because I used to believe in ghosts from my childhood in Japan. And he's like, uh, I mean, maybe. Is this going to get me laid? And she's like, look, there's a digital ghost on this video. And... Fuck! Ghosts are real! <laughs> right. I've, I've seen some of those on YouTube. She says, for this digital ghost, like somebody basically scrubbed somebody out of this image, but it left behind the, this kind of digital footprint. She says, to do this, whoever did this would have needed super high-res images of the room along this path. And that's right. where Sean Connery is like, aha! Like that Tanaka fellow who was doing that last night. Yeah, he he was a real sketchy son of a bitch. I asked him to take a picture of me, and he wouldn't do it. And then Jingo zooming in, doing some real enhanced kind of magic with this. It's movie bullshit. Yeah, it's like, but it looks like our ghost has left a reflection in in the glass. Oh my goodness, it's Eddie Sakamura. Eddie saw the murder? He knew who killed Cheryl. And yet he went on to dance the night away to the Chattanooga Choo Choo song. Eddie, what a scamp. He'll be missed. So there's another moment with Jingo and Wesley Snipes where he notices that she's got this deformed hand. Uh And you see this look on his face like, 
Could I live with that? Yeah, I could totally live with that. Yeah, it's fine. Because the rest of her is Tia Carrere. Then Sean Connery asked the audience here, who could do this level of digital didgeridoo in only five hours? That leads us to some other company that they mentioned the name of. And even though it don't matter. Yeah, there's this guy named Donaldson that Sean Connery knows who works for a company that was bought out by a Japanese company and are essentially like it's a phrase that they mentioned a couple of times called kiritsu which is like companies that are sort of at odds but they work together for mutual benefit so this is owned by one of those companies and along the way this lady uh who's taken him to visit this donaldson dude tells him like oh yeah we got some discs from the nakamoto company the night before and people were up late working on it and i know that they were pleased with that's, the result that's suspicious you're right it's like, well, that's the whole game then. Anyway, why don't we need to go visit with Donaldson if we already got this information? Sean Connery corners him. He's like, look, Donaldson, you did some work for Nakamoto. I need the original discs. Look, do you run this place or not? If the Japanese bought it, you know, did they cut off your balls? What are you doing? You know what? Suck it, Donaldson. We're out of here. And then they just leave. Before he leaves, he, uh, Sean Connery says, just give my regards to Mrs. Donaldson. Donaldson says, hey, give my regards to, uh, what's her name? Tia Correa, I mean, nobody. And so on their way out, Wesley Snipes says, hey, how did you come to be a special liaison officer for Los Angeles anyway? And also, what's what's her name? Who is that? And Sean Connery says, listen, what you ought to be asking yourself is, who's been setting us up? It's about time that we start beating the grass to startle the snakes. You ever hear that one? Sort of like snakes and ladders, but with a lot more beating the grass. That's right. You know, in Japan, you can't show a dick fucking a woman, but you could show a snake going into a vagina. We need to be asking, who was it that wanted us put together? We're being manipulated, and we are playing the most American of games, Wesley Snipes. Ketchup. And I don't mean the delicious condiment that I put on me hot dogs. So they get in the car and they drive off. Uh And then this teal blue 1960s Cadillac convertible filled with Eddie Sakamura's henchmen. They start following Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. And we get a car chase because this movie's pretty boring. Mm -hmm. And then during this scene, Wesley Snipes rides through the hood Mm -hmm. and he asks some of his urban friends for help getting rid of Eddie Sakamura's henchmen. It's all unnecessary. And then Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes get away. Yeah. It serves no purpose other than to slow down the movie and introduce more racism. Right. It is the one moment where I'm like, this is not accident. Like, th- this is accidentally racist. This movie thinks that it- it's, you know, sort of playing to Wesley Snipes character strengths. And all it's doing is just making you go like, oh, this is, these are horrible stereotypes. Yeah. It's like when you would see Granny's rap yeah and you're like wow please stop so sean connery then calls for an appointment at senator morton's office and in between wesley snipes and jingo are examining the disc further and they find a segment of the video that's replicated again and again uh and they know that because the clock doesn't move in this segment actually jingo coaches wesley snipes to figure that out yeah. he's like look at this picture what's wrong and he's like the murderer's not in it i mean the murderer's in it there's no fish in the fish tank there's no fish tank that man has mittens on his feet she's like no look at the clock and he's like it's a metric clock the minutes are hour it's running backwards yeah like wait it's not running at all. She's like, very good, detective. Yeah. Can I have an M&M now? And, <laughs> yeah, she feeds him a treat. 
Wesley Snipes is just brazenly flirting with her in this moment where he's like, so uh, how do you like working with the police, baby? You know, being Japanese and all and us being after a Japanese murderer, potentially. And she says, well, here I'm Japanese, but in Japan, I'm not because my father there was uh, in the Air Force. He was, hmm, how do you say this in America? Nigoru? Do you know that word? And Wesley Snipes, again, a direct quote from the movie is him saying, Oh, yes, I know that word. She was apparently sort of an untouchable because of her deformity, because Japanese people, she says, look at that as a flaw, that there there is something wrong with you. And then further, she fell in love with a gaijin who lived there, and they were both kind of cast out because he could no longer do his work there. Connery interrupts to be like, shut up, Jinko. This is all our personal, I mean... <laughs> We never really met before. But anyway, just get, bring the disc. We cut to Harvey Keitel. He's kind of shaking down Wesley Snipes. And he's like, hey, pal, I'm getting squeezed. You got to get that disc. All right, this case is closed. And then Wesley Snipes hands over the disc. And he says, go and close your case because I'm going to open it back up, baby. Yeah. But outside, Steve Buscemi, a.k.a. The Weasel, is watching a bunch of Japanese dudes go over the burned wreckage of Eddie Sakamura's car. They're like at the police impound for all these automobiles. And so he looks up at the window where Wesley Snipes is asking the very pointed question of, hey, why are these Japanese nationals going over this car? Sean Connery is like, look at that pickup truck. You recognize that pale blue Toyota? That's right. That was at Eddie's too. You know who owns it? Guess who? Tanaka, the head of Nakamoto Security. Things are getting pretty deep, Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery, they head out through the car impound, and Steve Buscemi comes over with a tape recorder in hand. He's like, hey, Wesley Snipes, I'm doing a story on you. It's about the Martino case. Remember that one? The one where you accepted a bribe? Any comments? I talked to your partner already. What do you have to say? What about you, Sean Connery? We're running a story on you, too. It's about how you're the biggest Japan basher this side of Chinatown. It's a real, like, no comment, no comment kind of thing. Sean Connery tells him to fuck off. Yeah. And so they get in the car, and once they're in there, you know, after Steve Buscemi has accused him of Japan bashing, Wesley Snipes is like, you, Japan bashing? What will they think of next? And Connery says, oh, well, they'll accuse you of being a racist. And again, it's one of those ones of like, I don't know why we're trafficking in this, in this movie. Like, this is unnecessary. We got to this Japanese restaurant where Sean Connery is sitting next to Yoshido. Remember, he's the head of the company and Ishihara as number two is there. Mm -hmm. Our movie's asshole, Bob Richmond is there as well as Wesley Snipes. And Yoshida says, look, Sean Connery-san, I welcome your involvement in this murder mystery. You're discreet. Last year, we were approached about investing in Microcon by this movie's asshole, Bob Richmond. And Richmond just jumps in. That's right. I told him Microcon needed a real shot in the arm. And you were the guys just to do it. Am I right? Or am I right? I'm right, right? All right. Hey, can I get some ketchup and a Long Island iced tea to wash this garbage down? Everybody, dude, just looks down at the table like, oh, you have really screwed up here bob richmond douchebag of the movie even sean connery kind of looks away it's just like oh you dumb son of a bitch yeah you've really stepped in it this time yoshida goes on to say as i was saying yeah we've received assurances that there would be no objection from the government we're just trying to help a company in financial difficulty we're the good guys and all this time Sean Connery is mimicking Yoshida's movements mm -hmm. in like how he crosses his arms and how he eats and how he drinks. The big reveal, if 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 you mentioned it, sorry, the big reveal is that Senator Morton is going to change his vote now. 
so that he is going to now be in favor of this microcon deal bob richmond shouts it out yeah because the microcon white guys they come walking in and bob richmond's like hey buddies did you hit a good news morton said he's changed his vote he was convinced that voting no was totally racist i reminded him that he had a sale that was gonna go to a japanese company and they said no and then they sold it to a french company and it was okay you know what he's a racist i changed his tune and mr yoshida kind of wraps up by by saying <sighs> You know, Bob Richmond, you son of a bitch. And he says, if Microcon did not want to be bought by a Japanese company, then don't put it on the market. You know, he's yeah. like, it's that easy. Just if you don't want to sell it, don't put it up for sale. Yoshida does say to Sean Connery, look, we're just doing business. And he says, let's play golf tomorrow. I'll try to make it harder for you to let me win. Yeah. And this scene genuinely ingratiates the audience to Yoshida. He comes off as an earnest, likable, good guy. Right. He's the only real likable guy in the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely a businessman and he's definitely very old fashioned and very staid and all that. But yeah, he seems to be an honorable kind of guy and has a little bit of a sense of humor and is a little sly and all that stuff. Yeah. He's a way more likable guy <laughs> than everybody else in the movie. Yeah. We cut over to Senator Morton's office where he's watching himself on tv change his position where he says well i'm not doing a 180 i've just modified my position on the microcon deal it's not a reversal right and he's also piping off in the room that's filled with staffers and things like that about how i've looked at poll numbers people really like this modified position thing I, i'm really getting a lot of support on it sean connery and wesley snipes are also there and sean connery says so how exactly is this not a reversal? If you're doing the opposite of what you were originally doing, that sounds like the reverse to me. And he's like, ah, you wouldn't understand uh, politics. You guys must be bored to death. Anyway, hey, let me ask you something that is in no way related to any of my personal concerns. But was there any link at all between the murder and the microcon sale? Wesley Snipes is about to say something. Sean Connery is like, not that we could tell. But then again, we're not very good detectives. And we're the only ones on the case. <laughs> and he says well you know what since there's not your investigation must be over hey i'll tell you what that's great news here are some campaign buttons before they leave though he tells sean connery like hey can i give you a piece of advice and sean connery is like oh this ought to be good yes please that's kind of my gig you know giving people advice in this movie but do your best and he says if the battle can't be won don't fight it and sean connery and wesley snipes walk away and connery says that's from Sun Tzu's Art of War. I believe that you read that on the plane in Passenger 57. It was also discussed in that movie, G. Lee. That's about a lesbian who has sex with Benjamin Affleck. It, it almost amazed me that we got this deep into this movie without some knucklehead bringing up Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Because it is shorthand for, look how deep and smart our movie is. And this movie is absolutely eaten up with, look how smart and clever our movie is. So I would genuinely stunned that it took this long for Sun Tzu to make an appearance in the film. Before they leave, Sean Connery writes down the fax number at Senator Morton's office. And then we cut to Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery again driving in their car. And Wesley Snipes is on his brick mobile phone uh, talking to his ex-wife. And his ex-wife says, Wesley Snipes, I'm taking our daughter. And you're getting brought up on new charges for that bribery scandal from a few years ago. 
and I hear you're a racist, and I hear you're driving around solving murder mysteries with racists. And then Wesley Sipes tells his wife to fuck off, and he gets a little heavy on the gas, so Sean Connery reaches over, takes the wheel, pulls over the car to the side of the road. Wesley Snipes is so angry at everything in his life. Wesley Snipes gets out of the car and threatens to beat up Sean Connery. Yeah. Like this old man, and he says, come on, I'll pimp slap you up and down this fucking street. And Sean Connery, being relatively even keeled here, says, you need to tell me about this bribery stuff because I can't help you if you don't tell me and I kind of want to help you inexplicably. Hey baby, me and my partner went on a domestic violence charge. We're in this house and we found a huge brick of cocaine in a crib next to a crying baby. And then I dipped my pinky in it and I tasted it. You know how I do. It turns out that the search was invalid. The wife won't testify against the husband. The husband comes in with an envelope filled with a hundred dollar bills and says thank you for your help officer my partner gives me the nod so i took the money and i split it with my partner graham now bo i watched this movie twice Mm -hmm. and it was here that i realized that bad lieutenant harvey keitel was his partner in this story yeah it took me to the, the second viewing as well to realize that that's what was going on I had to look up who Graham was. I was like, is it the chief? Is it the interrogator? Is it someone I missed? And when I saw it was Harvey Keitel, I was like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. When Wesley Snipes lays all this out, he says, the reason I'm telling you, by the way, is because you're on the take, too. And Sean Connery's like, what are you talking about? I'm on the take. I'm not on the take. I I don't accept money, you son of a bitch. And he says, what about that envelope that you got handed earlier? That was a membership to the country club, which is worth about, I don't know, $100,000. He also put in a few Froyo BOGO coupons to TCBY. It is, after all, the country's best yogurt. And Wesley Snipes is like, boy, it sure is easy to bribe people these days, baby. And he says, no, no, this is important for what I do. And Wesley Snipes says... That makes everything all white now, I guess. I I don't understand any of this, Bo. I like the fact that Wesley Snipes is throwing this back in his face. Like, you may not call it a bribe, but that's totally what it is. What is the everything all white comment? That is the thing that seems a little confusing coming out of this character's mouth. Like, it's enough that he's a dirty cop. I'm not trying to plant a flag and say, hey, this movie doesn't need to address racism or anything like that. But just have a finer point on it because I don't know know that connery does anything that is overtly racist in this movie this all just seems like yes maybe he's getting a bribe but i don't think i don't think that has anything to do with race i agree with you so they head back to wesley snipes apartment and outside the movie implies that there's a guy on a utility pole who's up to no good when wesley snipes and sean connery enter the apartment wesley snipes is looking for his daughter who again is about 10 years old and i guess she's staying with grandma they enter the apartment and they find his daughter sitting on the bed next to eddie sakamura who did not die yep and eddie's on the phone and he's like hey guys come on in don't worry i'm just calling my boys i'm setting up some hose and blow for later tonight who's in and shot connery's like you stupid son of a bitch get off the phone they're gonna be bugging this line you stupid what what happened oh i get it it was tanaka in the burned up car yeah tanaka the security guard got scared got in my car drove up and crashed and died that's what happened here's another thing i didn't understand until the second viewing when eddie basically explains why all of this happened like why tanaka ended up in that car which was he came over to eddie's to give him the real disc right because he was basically an employee of eddie's 
being kind of a double agent where he was working for Nakamoto, but also Tanaka was playing Nakamoto against Eddie. And basically, as Eddie puts it himself, he was playing both sides. So when he got caught at Eddie's in that Toyota, then, you know, he was basically found out. And so it was Eddie, by the way, who reported the initial murder of Cheryl Lynn and called Sean Connery to get in on the case using, you know, whatever political influence he had eddie holds up the original desk and he says hey man give me my passport i'll give you the disc and then there's a knock on the door and it's bad lieutenant harvey Keitel. wesley snipes opens the door and steps out in the hallway and harvey Keitel says hey man the squeeze is on the weasel is snooping you think i'm on the take you gotta play ball are you harboring a murderer in there eddie sakamura may be alive but he's dead he just forgot to lay down why don't you just let me kill eddie sakamura and it's your ass that's on the line you're putting a lot of guys in danger including your daughter all to protect one dead nip oh and uh, what yeah we get it yeah you're racist stop yeah that's a particularly rough one and wesley snipes to his credit just gives him the cold shoulder heads back inside and inside eddie nakamura is like oh wow so you would risk your life and your child and maybe your mother's life or is that your, your mother-in-law? <laughs> and they kind of give each other a quick bow, you know, just a, a sign that Eddie understand, like, is offering his respect and Wesley Snipes is showing his appreciation for that as well. So then Sean Connery is at the window is like, oh, looks like we've got some company. Here's some more of the boys from Nakamoto. Everybody grab a gun. Shit's about to pop off. This is about to get real serious. I didn't really shine up for this. Sean Connery is going to head out and take care of some business while Wesley Snipes puts together his fancy gun that I don't think he ever uses one time in this movie. But we spend a little bit of real estate just seeing him put it together. Yeah, it's real futuristic with a laser scope. Yeah. There are bad guys outside. Yeah. It's like a few henchmen. And Ishihara is there, remember our number mm -hmm. two. And he's also there with Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel. And then Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel, he goes over and gets in his patrol car. And his partner is this old white guy just sitting in the passenger seat silently. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, is this guy dead? But it turns out he's just unconscious because Sean Connery pops up from the back seat and he's like, Ha-ha! Vulcan nerf pinch! And he pinches Harvey Keitel in the neck, which renders him unconscious as well. Yeah, we'll see at the end of the movie Harvey Keitel. Does he come back at the end? It, it doesn't matter. Sean Connery goes to a parking garage. Yeah. He renders some thug unconscious with his judo chop! And then... He takes the guy's headset so he knows what's going on with the bad guys. Then Sean Connery turns off all the power to the building. And then Sean Connery just makes his way back up to Wesley Snipes' apartment to help everyone escape out the back door. Yeah, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. In a scene that might have been pretty good to, to watch him go around and take everyone out. And it just doesn't... They ain't got time for that. Uh, we, we need a car chase and we also need all this stuff with the kid and the, you know, the ex-wife. He leads him out the back door, but as they're leaving, Eddie Sakamura decides, like, well, I'm going to basically create a distraction. Yeah, he goes out the front door and starts screaming at Ishihara. Yeah. And then here we get our first of two unnecessary martial arts sequences. <laughs> yeah. And a guy pulls a katana sword. and They fight for a minute, and then Wesley Snipes goes after him. He's like, Eddie, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, we spent so much time trying to save your life here. Gunshots go off. Wesley Snipes gets... Gets shot and falls but it's pretty clear right away that he's got 
you know, his vest on. Yeah, well, he put it on earlier. We saw him get suited up for battle. And then after he gets shot, Eddie Sakamura, his throat is slit, so he's dead. And then while Wesley Snipes is kind of dealing with, I don't know what, the trauma of getting shot, Uh he has this vision of Cheryl Lynn, the murdered girl, topless, just saying his name over and over. Right. And which turns into Sean Connery in his vision, leaning down and going, Go high. <laughs> it's really disturbing. <laughs> and then we cut to the interrogation room where Wesley Snipes says, Hey, baby, that's all I remember. I'm like, Did he tell him about seeing the dead girl naked and Sean Connery whispering sweet nothings in his ear? Oh, one presumes. All right. And so the Lord of Illusion slash command captain or whatever is like, You were involved in a gang war. And he's like, That's not what happened. He's like, Let me repeat that. Here's what's in the paper. You were involved in a gang war. And Wesley Snipes says, no, that was just a business negotiation, baby. And we also see in this room that Bob Richmond and the Weasel are here, too. Why are they there? No idea. To show that everyone is stacked against Wesley Snipes. Uh, Right, they're in on it or whatever. They ask Wesley Snipes, like, well, do you know where Sean Connery is? And he's like, I have no idea where that man is. And they're like, all right, well, you're going to go on a voluntary leave. And then eventually all of this mess will blow over. Thanks for your time. Remember the gang war stuff. Cut to Wesley Snipes going to the video lab beneath the ice skating rink where Sean Connery is there with Tia Carrere and they are watching the original video where Sean Connery narrates what's going on like he's Thelma Dinkley outside of a haunted amusement park. <laughs> Here's Sherilyn and, and this, is a, this is a backdoor lover. That doesn't mean butt stuff, all right? He's a side piece. Get your mind out of the gut. Now, someone at Nakamoto must have suggested they go upstairs to the fuckatorium, little sex suite, to get the jollies. But instead, he decided to have a little snack at the open thigh buffet on the boardroom table. Here's the guy that they erased earlier from the video. Ha-ha! It's Eddie Sakamura watching his woman get railed by another man. Eddie had a very eclectic sexual taste. Oops, she's dead. All right, let's see who walks past the mirror and see who the killer is. And Wesley Snipes chimes in, hey, baby, it's Senator Morton. Yep. And that's where they kind of propose, well, whoever was controlling Senator Morton's blackmailing him with this tape controls the sale of Microcon. So all of this ultimately has been about manipulating the senator to vote a certain way so that they can get this sale to go through. But Chad, the surprises keep coming. Keep going. What happens next, Bo? Because it turns out that Cheryl Lynn wasn't dead at all when Senator Morton left the room. No. Tia Carrera says, hey, there's more of this video you haven't seen. You guys want to watch this? So we see another guy come in who knows the security cameras well enough to skirt around the edges and stay out of the lights. Dude, there's one part of this where Tia Carrera says, this is the part of the video we haven't seen. Look, something's different. And Wesley Snipes says, the clock's moving. And he is so proud of himself (laughs) for pointing out the obvious. (laughs) And Tia Carrera says, no, Wesley Snipes. Cheryl Lynn is not dead. That's what I was going to say. Cheryl Lynn's not dead. And she puts a treat in his mouth. (laughs) And then Sean Connery's like, look, there's some other guy coming in here. He's going to finish her off. And he's going to strangle her without putting his willy inside a pussy galore. That's a James Bond reference. And this guy can hide from camera's view. He's the one who really murdered Cheryl. Not Eddie Sakamura, rest in peace. All this 
piece of shit senator Moore. sure enough this guy comes in murders uh cheryl lynn and leaves without ever revealing himself and wesley Sam says we can't let him get away with this shit and sean connery says i am very okata and tia career leans in and goes that means pissed off yes pissed off i should have said that because my native tongue is actually english but sometimes i just revert to japanese for no good reason it's something that's called janglish no one calls it that sean connery shut up and he asks Wesley Snipes, so what are we going to do? And Wesley Snipes is like, are you really asking me? Because most of the movie, you've just been shouting at me. Well, I guess I am. I'm just as surprised as you all. What do you think we ought to do? So their plan is to just fax color photos of Senator Morton from the video showing his face and photos of the dead woman. And we cut to Senator Morton. He's seeing these pictures coming off his fax machine. He's all crying and out of sorts. Then the movie cuts back over to the Nakamoto boardroom. And apparently we've got a second day of negotiations because all the Japanese businessmen are there. All the American microcon representatives are there and our movie's asshole bob richmond is there ishihara the number two is there mm-hmm. and ishihara's phone goes off and he answers it and it's the blubbering senator morton he's like you said nothing would happen we had a uh, 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 deal did you see what i just got uh, on my fax machine and i was like well, how would he know what you got on your fax machine morton ishihara is not there i don't think the senator knows how fax machine technology works not everybody gets the same faxes all the time. Then there is, it's tough for me to parse exactly what this moment is. I think it's Ray Wise kind of imagining what the fallout of this is going to be. Because he goes into this weird like dream fugue state. I thought that they just started faxing other numbers and all of his staff sees it and his wife sees it but yeah maybe you're right he imagined it but he just grabs a gun and shoots himself yeah he goes out like martin sheen in the dead zone so yeah he takes himself out then we cut to the nakamoto boardroom where sean connery jingo and wesley snipes just bust into this boardroom where the negotiations What's she doing there that is a fine question that is it's a real like which one of these things are not like the others sean connery says listen yoshida-san we've got these two discs here one of them is full of make-em-ups this one is the real one this one has footage of that blonde-headed girl getting choked to death on this very boardroom table and everybody there's like ew gross do you want to watch this in private or do you want everyone here to see it i vote for the latter everyone here please we'll, we'll take everyone all right well i'm gonna play it just because you said so not because i want to see the looks on their faces when this goes down they're watching a snuff movie man absolutely and this so they watch the whole video and yoshida asks ishihira like why wasn't i told about this and ishihara says i had all this under control i was just protecting the situation yoshida says i'm afraid he spent a little too long in this country and has forgotten how to appropriately handle something like this and it's not with this kind of dishonesty further cementing yoshida as the only decent human being in this movie yeah but while that's happening Bob Richmond is kind of slowly backing towards the exit. Well, Ishihara is like patting his head with his handkerchief and all the executives slink away. And Sean Connery narrates to Wesley Snipes, look at them. They're distancing themselves with Ishihara because he fucked up good. All right. My money says he's our killer. That would make the most sense. You know? Yeah. He killed her so that he could blackmail Senator Morton. It all makes perfect sense. And then they watch the video and then you see Cheryl come to and then Ishihara's begging for his forgiveness. 
And, you know, with this whole thing about how he was protecting the situation. On the video, the real killer comes in and strangles Cheryl. Everybody in the room looks at Ishihara, this number two. Mm -hmm. And Ishihara gives it this look of like, hey, it wasn't me. And he just points at Bob Richmond, who is strolling out of the boardroom, like whistling with his hands in his pockets. And then he just takes off running. Mm -hmm. In the original novel, Ishihara is the killer. Yeah. Which, like you said, and makes sense. It's a it's a perfect, like, he was protecting the company because he thought that was the right thing to do. But, obviously, it's murder and blackmail. And his fate is that he jumps off the building and commits suicide. Yeah. This movie, the out is, it wasn't me, it was that guy. Yeah. And we have this tacked-on chase scene that means nothing. And it's a real Keystone Cops thing where it's some of Eddie Nakamura's guys, it's some of the Nakamoto security guys, it's Sean Connery and wesley snipes and everybody is chasing bob richmond all the way to this construction area where wesley snipes and sean connery now engage in another pointless karate fight with some of the nakamoto guys and they fight for a little bit and then the the other guys that they're fighting just stop fighting right wesley snipes is like come on come on i'm, I'm all revved up my engine's going now and sean connery's like that's not what they want they don't want to beat your ass or have their ashes beat by you they were just trying to delay us and they were successful so they catch up in time to see that eddie's pals have dumped bob richmond into the wet cement that is being laid down in the foundation of this building and he just sinks down under it like it's quicksand or something you do get to hear him go ah chris Bloosh. but you don't see it you just hear it and when they catch up to him his face is just sinking in and instead of saving him sean connery is like that stuff dries real fast and there's no way they're going to tear up the foundation of this building just go to go after a corpse. Just going to be a haunted building, that's all. So, Bob Richmond is gone and that's it. Ishihara gets carted away by his employer's employees. Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery, they're now friends. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Wesley Snipes gives Tia Carrera a ride home because Sean Connery and Yoshida, they hop in a car to go play golf. On the ride home, uh, Tia Carrera instills some doubt as to whether or not Bob Richmond actually killed Cheryl Lynn because she read the original book. But at this point, nobody cares. Right. What is the point of doing this at the end of this movie? He drops her off at her home, which turns out to be the fish butchery from the beginning of the movie where he picks up Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes says, Hey baby, this is where I picked up Sean Connery that first. Oh, he's the guy, Jen, the Caucasian you left Japan with. Hey, he's out playing golf. How about you and me, you know, getting something, something. What did Sean Connery mean when he said you need to leave the cage door open so the bird can return? And Tia Carrera's like, I don't know. Right. So she walks inside and she goes in and closes the door and Wesley Snipes watches her enter this warehouse and then the door kind of latches but it opens again and Wesley Snipes just stands there Thinking about, what, going in to have sex with this woman? Cuckolding the man that he has earned the grudging respect of? Yes. But then, from the spirit world, he hears Sean Connery's voice say, Kohai! <laughs> You're right. Fade to black. Yeah, and we get to hear Eddie Sakamura sing, Don't Fence Me In Again. Yeah. One thing that we kind of glossed over that I will just mention because it's one of my favorite things in, in the movie is when they push Ishihara into the car, Wesley Snipes is told that he's going to be window seated, which is not that he's going to be fired or anything. He's just going to be taken back to Japan, given an office that looks out a window and never 
given any kind of authority or responsibility ever again. And he will just live out his life that way, being completely useless to everyone. Never get promoted. You know, I, I think it's kind of an interesting punishment. Talk about a difference between East and West. I can name 14 people right now that would die for that. Oh, I get a window seat and I don't have to do jack shit. <laughs> yeah. Punch in at nine, punch out at five. Yeah, I got a couple of guys that I work with that kind of fit the bill <laughs> as well. So that's it. That is, uh, that's Rising Sun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bloated movie filled with crime and murder and racists and car talk without click and clack. And It's not that it's boring. It's like, I, I wish this movie were an hour and 40 five minutes instead of two hours you you know like we said you cut out all the kid and and wife stuff and you just make it a mystery and yeah. you give the characters that you're investigating a little more to do you can also cut out that stan shaw character completely because that don't matter either there are ways to make this a much more elegant film in its plotting and and make the right. characters more interesting and also address the east west stuff and just don't worry about the racism between wesley snipes and sean connery that doesn't seem to be there until someone brings it up it's frustrating because it's not a, a terrible movie it's just not very good at the same time sounds like most of the movies this season philip kaufman i think is an interesting director and i think he's there are things that he's trying to say with this movie and i just think it's a little bit too mixed up for any of that to be very clear but what do you got coming up on the next episode of big six movie in this season's theme right in the middle with you well it's time to introduce some new faces and welcome back some old friends on the show as we welcome back gene simmons last seen in kiss meets the phantom of the park yes and say a howdy do to the mustache himself, Tom Selleck. Nice. Yeah. This is Crichton in all his Crichtonness. It is a near future situation. You've got technology run amok being used for illicit purposes. You've got robots running around. You've got cops. And this is a Michael Crichton directed film. That's right. So uh, what I'm talking about, of course, is Runaway. The movie that dares to ask the question, Huh? <laughs> what if Tom Selleck got attacked by robot spiders that spit acid? And that is way more exciting than the actual movie. For the longest time, I thought that this movie was a made-for-TV film, because that was the only place where I ever saw it. Mm -hmm. It turns out it was actually in theaters. It surprised everyone, including the cast, I think. <laughs> it's a weird movie, and it, weirdly, it's a movie that I've seen a bunch. I've only seen it once, and... Um, yeah, it's a real something. So yeah. Come back and see us in two weeks' time. Like, rate, review. You can email us at big6movies at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on the internet. We're all around doing our thing, just like you are as well. Bo, any final thoughts that you have on Rising Sun? From now on, Chad, you're going to call me Shimpai. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks' time, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>